WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 328. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the APG headquarters studio in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on the 14th of June, 2018. In today's episode, the U.S. Air Force grounds F-15 fighters and B-1 bombers. A Lufthansa A340-300 gets badly burned from a tug vehicle fire. And see you later, alligator. More news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, a little VC tenderness. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 328 is ready for pushback. Hello and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast, and I'm a captain for a U.S. legacy mainline carrier, and joining me today to help me answer your great questions and discuss news and all that kind of stuff is this young lady from her beautiful lakeside home in South Carolina. She's a doctor, a skydiver, a marathon runner, a strength training junkie, an IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Allegedly. Allegedly. All of those things. Yes. Well, very excited to be here for episode 328. It's going to be a great show, and I'm really looking forward to spending the next couple of hours with you guys. We are looking forward to it as well, and also joining us from his new recording studio outside of London... I guess it's still new. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London. Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, staff. Hi, Dana there, somewhere in the background. Yeah, it is still fairly new, and I'm adding to it every day. Uh, we've got curtains up now, and a little bit of soundproofing, and I've adjusted the TV so that's straight, new clocks. Um, it's getting there. It's getting there very nicely. Enjoying being here. Love the lighting and the background. Very nice. Ah. And also joining us from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pontoon boat skip pontoon boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Well, hello, everybody. Great to be back and uh, looking forward to another fun episode of the APG. That's about it. All right. want to hear a little bit more of your uh, intro music. I love that. It is. It is pretty freaking awesome. <laughs> it is just rocking. So, Mr. Captain, uh, you just returned from a... Uh, I thought I hit the button to make that thing go away, but apparently not. Let me try that again. There it oh, is. Oh, it did. It is okay. now kaput. Yeah, so uh, Captain Dana Colton, uh, you uh, got all checked out and got your uh, official PIC badge, right? Your Or pin or something? I don't know. Yeah, uh, well, they pinned me with the, the wings. They 
took the, the the little protectors off and took them and slammed into my chest, so it went straight to my oh, shirt. Oh, they did not. I skin, and no, I'm like, they do that. Actually, they do that in uh, the uh, Air Force pilot training when we get our wings. Do they really? For reals? At least they did when I went through. I was the only one in the class, so they did that too. Hmm. Hmm. Weird. Um, no, I, I, don't, I don't. I don't see why they would not do that to you. <laughs> and we were all uh, very lubricated. We uh, didn't weren't feeling much at all, so it wasn't a big deal. Well, that's all right. I stabbed myself with a bayonet. Did you? Well, that's clever. <laughs> I thought so. And knock on wood, have not yet ever once stabbed myself. Well, that's not true. One time, clean needle. So. Clean needle. Thank the Lord for that. It wasn't a clean bayonet. It was oh, shiny chrome, and it was the idiot beside me because. Uh, if you're in a parade and you are dressing and you've got weapons, um, you use your left hand, you put it up, and you look the opposite direction to just check the ranks straight. And uh, then at the command ice front, you slam your hands down. And what the guy beside me had done was let his rifle tilt outwards. So as I slammed my hand down, I stuck it straight on top of his bayonet. <laughs> Ouch. Oh. Ouch. Yes. Ouch. <laughs> Ow. Warren Oster came along. He took his handkerchief out, stuffed it inside my glove, and said, Bear up, Mr. Anderson, bear up. And off we went. <laughs> there was no pointed argument there. Hmm. No. <laughs> oh, well. Ouch. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds. Sorry. <laughs> hey, uh, so I, as I was saying, uh, Captain Dana, um, so how has it been now on your own being a captain out there flying the, the friendly skies? I wouldn't know. <laughs> did they, did they, did they change your mind? Yeah, they changed their mind. They took it away from me. They said, yeah, well, we decided. So we know that you were uh, in uh, the Cayman Islands, uh, Grand Cayman, uh, last week. Yep. And uh, so you took a little, uh, a little vacation. Since you've been back, have you just not had any trips assigned? Are you on reserve? What's the well, deal? Yeah, let me let me kind of back up a little bit. Okay, okay. so uh, I, I did. Uh, Be careful. Look just... behind you before you do that. Oh wow! There's all that cool stuff still on my wall that everybody gave me from the 300th episode. Uh, anyways, um, so yeah, I finished on June 4th, um, and the FAA. Uh, portion of the check ride was uh, was done by a designee which is a lead line check pilot who's observing the line check pilot or the OE examiner give me the line check so it's, it's kind of like a double whammy one one's was not really uh, all that uh, bad i uh, and for those folks that are on the apg cadre i sent jeff a uh, feedback folder or uh, crew log excuse me crew log uh, explaining everything in detail that went on during that trip um, but I finished up on the fourth and uh, you know you're you're not in trouble when both the examiner and the examinee are, are both sitting there chatting the whole entire time not worrying about what I'm doing so um, it was going very well uh, very nitpicky a couple things that they uh, picked upon which told, told me even more so that I did uh, a fantastic job on the uh, on the flying and uh, the the managing and taking care of everything of course it turned out to be every every almost every flight I had had the entire two four-day trips that I had was IMC and shooting ILSs and almost no visual approaches. Well, guess what happened on my OE uh, on my last round trip with the FAA? Clearing a million. So I almost didn't know how to shoot a visual approach. 
So, but uh, I figured it out because you know I've done thousands of them. Anyway, so it it went very well. They signed me off on the fourth. You know, the FAA. He said, as a representative of the FAA, reach over and congratulations, Captain Colton. You are now, uh, as far as the FAA is concerned, signed off. So that was really a great feeling going into Indianapolis. And uh, on the way back, it was my leg to monitor, and that was the last time I've seen in the airport or an airplane other than going down to Grand Cayman, which was supposed to be with my buddy Tony. I just came back from Grand Cayman, as most of you probably remember, uh, back in April. I went to the exact same location, to the exact same operation, to the exact same dive spots. Uh, well, they have a few different dive spots. But anyways, the reality is I did not want to go there. I just was going there for my buddy Tony because he was going for his checkout dives. Nor did I want to go away. I just want to stay home and relax on my boat. But that's not how it worked out because, unfortunately, Tony's sister passed away just after we booked it. And oh. it's a 100%, 100% cancellation fee. So if we had canceled for – they don't care what reason – uh, if we had canceled, then uh, it was 100% fee, and that was uh, quite a bit of money. So I, I was able to round up another buddy who decided to go diving with me and uh, took Tony's spot, and uh, so we still went. And then so that's the reason why I missed last week. But uh, I've been on call all week, Monday through Thursday, and very happy with my schedule because I've got Friday, Saturday, and Sundays off. As you all know, that's one of my biggest burdens that was I was bearing is worrying about having the weekends off. And guess what? I got my schedule all the way through July now, and I'm off every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it's working out great. However, they never called me this week, so I had a really difficult week. I haven't shaved. I went out to the boat. I rode the motorcycle. I've cleaned the house. I've done the shopping. I've fixed several things around the house, and now I'm sitting around with a lot of things to do. But now, it's, now the weekend is here. So, And you get uh, to do an APG show on Thursday afternoon. Thursday afternoon, it's perfect. Worked out perfect. <laughs> well, awesome. Well, I know you'll be out there soon, and then can't wait to hear how it feels for you to be on your own as captain out there. I'm, and I'm looking forward to that. You know, fortunately I'm in a position that, uh, you know, most people that when they check out an airplane, they go through thing, what's called a thing called consolidation. Well, because I've been, and you have to fly 100 hours within the first 90 days of, of being uh, rated on the airplane. Well, fortunately, cause I've been on the airplane so long, uh, I don't have to go through that. So I don't have to worry about that. Hundred uh, the hundred hours and, and getting with this. Oh, so you're not a high minimums captain at all. I'm a high minimums captain, but I'm oh. not. I don't need to consolidate. So I think, okay. and I think it's not 98. I think it's 120, 120 uh-huh. days uh, to consolidate to get the first hundred hours. So it looks, it looks good so far. It's working out well. They did not give me any short calls this week, which is a short call is a two hour window where you have to be at the airport. It's all been 12 hour call out. So I would know 12 hours in advance if they were going to utilize. Me and I mean, frankly, uh, the category is so overstaffed. Uh, the reserve levels right now are in. A, a, I'm going to give you a range in between like 25 to 35 required each day, and we have on average uh, in between 60 to 100 available each day. So uh, the chances of me flying a whole lot, unless something really goes haywire, I think for the next couple weeks might be uh, might be limited. So. We'll see. All right. Very good. Dr. Steph, how have you been? Hmm, I have been well. Just um, lots of personal stuff going on. Busy there. I was out in uh, the eastern part of North Carolina uh, last weekend where I have a rental property, which um, 
my longtime tenant has finally moved on to other things. So it's time to get that place all straightened up and lots of work to do. Um, flooring and painting and all kinds of stuff to get it in rentable condition again. Not from what my tenant did, mostly from what my large dogs that I previously had when I lived there did to the place um, that she didn't mind me leaving alone for a while. So had a really productive weekend, went out there, got all of that taken care of. They're doing the work on the house now. I spent all day one day just working on the backyard, which is not a very big um, piece of property or land, but it was growing like two foot tall weeds everywhere um, from some recent heavy rains that we had. <laughs> so that was quite the project to uh, required actually purchasing a weed whacker and, you know, going over the entire yard with that. Um, but it looks it's in good condition now. It looks nice. And then I spent the rest of the weekend visiting all my favorite food places in eastern North Carolina with some wonderful barbecue at a place called Bee's Barbecue and some of the best shrimp and grits you'll ever have down at Chef and the Farmer and a minor league baseball game just to top things off. So other wow. than that, um, no flying, no other sky related stuff this week, but been busy. Necessary wow. stuff. Very cool. Very cool. I'm okay. jealous. Yeah. Oh, the food was fantastic. Yeah, the, the yeah, special, yeah that's, bees that's barbecue. Right yeah. Bees, mm. bees barbecue is so good. I don't know. I'm thinking maybe uh, I might have to head over that way sometime, maybe next year. Uh, Check yeah. out some of those places. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. Um, Captain Nick, how have you been, sir? Well, I'm just hanging on in there, uh, waiting to go back to work. Uh, I have had my blood tests, waiting for the results to come through. Got to see the professor next week and um then just waiting for the caa to say yep you're okay you can go back flying uh, however if they don't do it by uh sort of midweek next week uh, i'm off on holiday to cornwall so i may be taking a sabbatical from uh, the apg and plane tales just for a week uh, because uh, we'll be off in uh, the quiet world in a nice rented uh, cottage down there with our dogs, uh, meeting friends, eating Cornish pasties and uh, drinking lots of wonderful Cornish beer. They do good IPAs down there. In fact, I'm drinking one mm. now. Sharp's uh, Wolf Rock. Exceptional red IPA. Very nice. Did I try that one? I think I did. No, I don't think no. so. I didn't ha have it. I've only no. found it in the last couple of months. So you must try it when you come out. Will do. I would love to as well. No, you can't. I'm sorry. Ah, shoot. Oh, speaking and of, I did um, finally book my ticket out to back to England for Farnborough. So my travel plans are squared away. Oh, excellent. When do you arrive? Mm, Friday morning, I think. Okay. Sounds Early. good. And try to time it because that's uh, actually, I'm off that Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, I think yeah, is what if I you can arrive, I'll with. send you the, the flight info for sure. We'll try and uh, coordinate times and you can... Um, I'm driving. <laughs> driving where? The next place. Where? Hey. To next place. Oh, From so you rented, a, you rented a car? I did. She oh. got. She rented a car. Car. Hey, did you uh, uh, did you look at my schedule, uh, Dana? Uh, For July? Yeah, I did. You. This is a live show. There are certain <laughs> things I just cannot say to describe you right now. <laughs> So I have three weeks of vacation in July, starting on the 8th and ending on the 28th. And that gives me 
that gives me credit uh, for the month, uh, 73 hours and 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then I put a stipulation uh, when they run the bidding thing uh, that uh, I, I get minimum credit. And the minimum amount that I have to reach is is less than what I actually already have from my vacation credit. So basically, there's nothing on my schedule for July. Now, I'll probably fly a trip that first week before I head over to uh, the UK. And uh, the last part of the month, I don't know, because uh, as many of you know, in my personal life, I'm going to have to be out in California on uh, yeah, the that last week, uh, that last full week uh, or somewhere in there um, for a for a trial, potentially, unless something happens before then. Anyway, uh, so yeah, July is looking good. Um, mm-hmm. I was on a trip this week, um, originally bid for a four day trip, a very nice four day trip. And, uh, but then, uh, the whole, uh, jury summons thing came into play and they ended up lopping off the last two days of my trip. So I flew Monday and Tuesday and then I got home Tuesday morning after just one flight home from Pensacola early in the morning. And then yesterday and today. I uh, Oh, I left out a little detail. I called in the night before, as you're to do, uh, if you're one of the standby groups for the jury duty. And uh, I was in group number four, and they said, if you're in group one, two, or three, please report for duty tomorrow morning. If you're not in one of those groups, then see ya. Thanks for your, for your duty. And uh, so didn't have to go in. And I could have flown the whole darn trip, but... Anyway, uh, didn't have to, so I've been off for the last couple of days. And then tomorrow, I'm so excited. I get to be a co-pilot again for Captain Mike Carrolls, and we're going to fly in his uh, Beechcraft Musketeer uh, up to, eventually, the uh, Dulles International Airport for the Innovations in Flight Family Weekend, or Family Day, on Saturday. But we're leaving tomorrow. And I want to show you something very, very clever that um, that Mike did. So just bear with me here. This will all be edited out, I'm sure. Nope. Maybe. Okay, I'm going to share something with you all. And uh, Mike apparently has uh, a lot of time on his hands because he is, created this is, from is scratch. It, is, is it? Oh, my. <laughs> uh, you're getting all giddy there. That's what I was going to comment on. Like oh, jeez, really? Okay, I can see what he did. You see that he uh, if, he if you created white box it so everyone can see it while we're all talking. Okay. Uh, now I think um, it's going to stay on the screen, right? Okay. And uh, so it is. Uh, for those of you familiar with what our rotations look like at or trips look like at Acme. <laughs> Uh, they look exactly like this. And I mean, like right down to almost every single detail. And so we're going to be leaving uh, CCO, which is Kilo uh, Charlie Charlie Oscar Noonan Airport, Noonan Coweta County Airport at eight o'clock tomorrow morning, heading up to um, MTV. What is that? Uh, something oh, Virginia. Um, it's, uh, Martinsburg, I think. I think it's Martinsburg. Let me double check. Yeah. And uh, or or it's say, also gonna watch a, we're going to watch a MTV video? music videos <laughs> music video. Yeah, it's just going to be Dire Straits. You have to listen to the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> and we are uh, he has a Martinsville Blue Ridge Martins, yeah. Martinsville uh, Virginia, and we're going to stop there for fuel and probably uh, 
something to eat. And uh, we ha- he has us scheduled to arrive at 11.03. And that's a three hours and seven minutes block. <laughs> he even has minutes under. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> and a turn time of one hour. And then we're going to uh, leave there and head up to IAD, uh, Dulles International Airport, arriving there sometime a little bit after 2 o'clock. And then look at the hotel. This is nice. We have a 15-hour and 48-minute – oh, more than that. He for, he forgot the extra day in there. Um, the uh, Casa de Fernandez. I think that's the uh, last name of his uh, in-laws. We're staying at their house. And uh, anyway, uh, very clever. So, Mike, if you're watching slash listening, good job, man. That's a very, very clever of you. I agree with Dana. You have way too much time on your hands. Yeah, way <laughs> too much time. Seriously. And why Why would you put him as a regular pilot? He should be in reserve. <laughs> Nielsen should be in reserve. But it really doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Because well, well, you can put, put Colton your, he, in there. You can put Colton in there in reserve because if Nielsen doesn't feel like going, he can, Colton can fill in. That's right. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like he's going to give you time to fly if he's put you in his, his crew. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, I think I've um, shamed him enough. <laughs> he's actually going to let me touch the controls of his airplane. I don't know. But I, I tell you what, I'm not going to attempt any landings, though, because I've, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to ever fly or land an airplane uh, in front of any of my so-called friends ever again. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Saturday, uh, Saturday, we'll be hanging out at the Udvarhazi Center in uh, uh, the Smithsonian uh, Air and Space Museum up there uh, in Chantilly, uh, just on the south end of the Dulles International Airport. And uh, the Airplane Geeks are having a great um, celebration there. Uh, they're going to be covering the show. I think they're podcasting live, so we'll probably bug them a, a bit. So they're going to be a bunch of a- Airplane Geekers and APGers and Flying and Lifers uh, and uh, and more, I'm sure, in uh, presence uh, at the Udvarhazi Center on Saturday. So you know that a lifer is in over here. I don't know if it's the same in the states. It's someone who's received a life sentence. Yes, yes. it's the same thing. Yeah, and uh, well, <laughs> flying in lifer. I mean, it if the shoe fits. There you go. Okay, uh, so we're looking forward to seeing you all. Um, if you're hearing, of course, by I don't know when this show will actually be released. Probably after <laughs> after the Saturday at Innovations and in Flight uh, Family Day, but. Whatever. Um, yeah. So I'm sure we'll have some audio to play on the next show. Ah, let's see. Anything else to talk about? Let me get back to Evernote here, which is what I use to keep track of everything. Oh, uh, can we can we talk about the uh, the host of the one of the hosts of the Plain Talking UK podcast? I uh, I meant to ask if it was okay that we talk about this. Um. Can we talk? Wait, talk about what? I don't know what you're talking about. Well, look at my. No, you're not looking at the intro. Um, I'm not. Okay, well, I'm going to. Well, I know I'm, what you're talking about, about a certain event that's happened. Uh, I think I know what you're talking about, too, but I, are we allowed to talk? Congratulations, Neville Bounds and Sue, Mr. and Mrs. Nev. Yay! And. Hooray! Sympathy card is in the mail. Oh, along with a bag of rice. Sympathy card for Sue. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Well, that doesn't. Do 
And Nev, if I'm not supposed to talk about this on air, please send me a message. Very you know, quickly. Cut it, cut it out of the audio. I saw some pictures of them. They tweeted. Uh, oh, okay, so it's it's on Facebook. Yeah, it's, it's, on it's, Facebook. it's been pretty public. Right. I don't okay. think it's a secret. And it was, I think they did talk about it on um, PTUK as well. Okay, good. Yeah. I think we're Reading in the photographs and the whole nine yards and a picture mm -hmm. of uh, Neville uh, there with a big book in front of him. And I, I said, I, I guess this is you filling out your logbook. So, uh, I think he was uh, signing the register. Yes, I see. Lo oh, that's lovely right. photos, and it looks like a lovely day. And I hope they're enjoying um, their honeymoon. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Portugal. Well, sorry if I put something on the uh, on the rotation that wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't. I didn't see it. Um, I don't know if it is or not. I was just. I don't think so. I don't see okay. my phone number on there. Uh, there gotcha. are some phone numbers for Acme on there, but uh, okay. They're not anyone's personal phone numbers. No, Just making no. sure. Okay. I think, uh, I think it's probably a, you know one of those eight hundred numbers that you call, you get paid, you get charged by the minute. <laughs> Nine hundred numbers. Nine hundred. <laughs> not that I'd know anything about that. Oh, right. see, I didn't even know because I said eight hundred numbers. See, I'm yeah. stupid, Ian. Well, that goes it's without it's saying. It's, it's a misclear. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue the point. Okay. Um, I'm not a smart man. Let's see. No, you are. Dan is a smart man. Um, you got to say it right. Smart. Smart. Smart man. Okay, so we talked about Nev's nuptials. And uh, I said nuptials, not not another word. Uh, mm -hmm. Innovations in flight. We talked about that. And, uh, oh, we have, you know, as we always say, we, we do strive to be as accurate as possible in the show. Uh, and uh, this really struck me struck me as a very very rare uh that uh we would have to correct anything in uh, in a plain tale but uh jonathan out there uh helping us strive for the highest accuracy rating possible sent us some feedback and he said i'm a huge fan of plain tales on a recent trip to the uk i raced through the archive of past plain tales i'd not heard and a few others i'd heard but wanted to hear again they're that good and was reminded not just of how good they all are, but also how much I missed the theme music Captain Nick used in some of his early episodes. You know, you really never had a theme. You just used the same well, music. Well, at, at one while, point, right? um, the software I was using um, developed a glitch, and I couldn't access. Oh any no, not of a glitch. Music. So, yeah. So for quite a few plain tales, uh, I got I I just copied the same music I'd used on the previous one over and over again, until eventually Apple fixed the glitch. Um, so now I, I, I'm back to trying to make the um, music a little bit theme-like so mm -hmm. that it sort of represents the story a little more. But obviously he got used to that old music. Uh, I know all about people getting used to certain things. And then when you uh, change them, they don't like it. Yep. We fear change. Not going to point any fingers. <laughs> okay. And uh, so anyway, go on, uh, moving on with uh, Jonathan's feedback uh, at any rate, while I love Plain Tales, I do have to write in with a little correction about the latest edition, about the Taka flight that landed on the levee, while Captain Nick stated that the plane might not touch down on the runway because of a law mandating, mandating, <laughs> I just made a new <laughs> word, mandating that one in every five interstate miles be straight. There's actually no such law. It's a common urban myth with just enough reality to be perpetually, perpetually. <laughs> I'm having trouble with my words. I'm not a smart man. Okay. Uh, with just enough reality to be perpetually 
repeated. I've attached an article from Snopes that documents the myth and explains that it's just not true. Hope you don't mind my efforts to keep the show above that 50% accuracy rating. And then he gave us the link to the Snopes article. And uh, take it away, Captain Nick. What's your defense, sir? Well, I'm going to cover my backside, as I always do, by saying that uh, all I was doing was quoting the story that the air trafficker told. So it wasn't my um, research. It was his. He believed it was true, and he was actually busy looking for a straight bit um, to put the aircraft down on. Um, So it was uh, something that he uh, obviously misunderstood. And he, um, I'm pretty damn certain, is an American. (laughs) So there you go. Now it makes sense. I'm thinking to myself, why why would Captain Nick be okay with us discussing an error that he made on plane tales. <laughs> and now I get it. It's yeah, because it you really didn't my... make the error. Somebody well, else did. Yeah, exactly. okay. <laughs> Were you aware of it being an urban legend though? No, I wasn't. No, I must've been. It's I actually thought... pretty commonly quoted. People will say yeah. it all the time. Almost so anybody will say, I Oh yeah. It I was that. interesting, but it wasn't interesting enough for me to actually go and check it out. And if I had checked it out, I wasn't quite sure what I'd do because it was what they actually did at the time in the control room. They were looking for this straight bit of highway. Uh, and what was I supposed to do? Add a caveat at the end? I'm not sure. No. Yeah. But no. Yeah. He, he believed a common urban myth. That would have been a good way to do it. <laughs> They're long enough as it is. No, I know. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. But, you know, going That's forward, everyone who, everyone who listens to the show now knows. Yeah. That's an urban, exactly. urban legend. According to this whispered bit of facetious lore, if the U.S. ever comes under attack, those straight, flat stretches in the highways will be used as landing strips. Uh, but uh, this article from Snopes goes on to uh, debunk this, uh, this myth, this urban myth. And uh, we'll put a link to that debunking in the show notes. And thank you, Jonathan, for keeping your, your ear keenly uh, listening to any possible error or glitch on the show and it's a very rare thing (laughs) (laughs) never never happens no never okay uh anything else before we move on to the coffee fund i don't think so okay well then let's do it johnny how much more coffee no thanks i love coffee I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. I've just realized that my the chair that I'm in is sinking. <laughs> I'm getting older, my spine is compressing, and I'm shrinking. Here we go. Get myself up a little bit more. That's what she said. All right, moving on to the Coffee Fund. Since the last show, we have a couple new producers uh, via Patreon, new patrons. We have Charles Prince, also known as Texas Charlie. Uh, Loic Marzin uh, from, uh, let's see, he's uh, originally from France, but he's living somewhere in the United States, I think, Salt Lake City or something. Anyway, got some nice email from him. And uh, Randy Bledsoe, also a new producer at Patreon. 
And also, uh, we have something called the Coffee Fund Classic Method, where you can interface with PayPal and give us a one-time or even a recurring donation over there at uh, PayPal. And since the last episode, Ian Griffin gave us a nice donation. So thank you, all of you, for becoming part of our Coffee Fund cadre. And if you, dear listener, would like to join them, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad so will we. Stand by for news. Right. Well, you know, we've already played it once in this episode, but let's do it again. It's just, it's wedding season. It what is. can you do? It's, uh, it's in the air. Love yeah. is in the air. And in this case, it is the love of Airbus and Bombardier. It is official, folks. They are now in family ties with the C-Series deal. Airbus and Bombardier closed their C-Series agreement after receiving the necessary approvals. The integration of the plane family in Airbus's catalog will become effective on July 1st. Ah, oh, so sweet. And... Uh, I've just what? noticed that's ABC. Oh, look at that, ABC. Easy as one, two, three. All right, um, that's a... Do re me. No. <laughs> no, I was doing the A, B, C. Easy as one, two, three. That was the, uh, was it the, the Jacksons? Jackson or was the Jackson 5? Okay. Airbus is to acquire a majority stake in the hmm, Society and Commande Avion C Series. <laughs> what? Society and Commandant Avion C Series, the SCAS, a joint venture which was originally created by Bombardier and Investissement Quebec. Pretty good, huh? You're fired. You're just fired. Steph said, perfect. I'm just waiting to hear what Josine thinks of it. Is she in uh, the chat room? Not yet. No. I'm hoping not. <laughs> but she'll surely write some feedback about that. that I hope yeah. so. We need another lesson, Josine, by the yes, way. I can get the, some of those words, but I don't... I don't know how you say that word. Oh, I don't feel so bad now. Societe. I didn't take any French. Uh, it's been 20 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> A lousy excuse if you ask I know. Me. Hey, Liz is Canadian. Maybe she can speak some French. Yeah, but she's in the, uh, the Ontario province. Oh, well. So. Anyway, uh, SCAS is in charge of the production of the CS100 and CS300, two regional airlines with a capacity, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, basically the takeaway here is that it's official uh, that uh, the C-Series jets are going to become part of the Airbus catalog. And I think it says here, let's see, despite rumors in April 2018, the change of name of the CS100 and CS300 into respectively A210 and A230 
was not confirmed. So it may or may not happen. Uh, so if you want to learn more about this, uh, this deal, this uh, family tie, this uh, new relationship, uh, you'll have to go to the show notes to read the rest because we're not going to do it here. We're not going to waste your time because it, we're going to uh, move. It's good for Bombardier. I'm oh, sorry. You were saying going to move on. No, it's good go ahead. for Bombardier. Uh, it's uh, really um, a bit of a poke in the eye for Boeing who forced them together. And now they're going to be an even larger competitor. Thank you for think, your editorial comment. Yeah, I think Boeing's just fallen way behind the wayside. They've been stubborn about which aircraft they're going to build and, and uh, what they're going to produce. And then they wanted to fight that legal battle. Now they've got themselves a monster. So good luck. I'd say some uh, missteps uh, in recent history. Yes. Um, B. Kadena Air Base has paused all F-15 Eagle flying operations after a pilot crash in the early hours Monday morning off the coast of Okinawa, the base said. Monday, the F-15C, assigned to the 44th Fighter Squadron of the 18th Wing, crashed at approximately 6.26 a.m. The lone pilot successfully ejected and was rescued by uh, Japan Air Self-Defense Force but remains in serious condition after being transferred to the U.S. Naval Hospital. And uh, they say that he was on a routine training flight when the crash occurred over the southern waters of Okinawa. And that's about all we know from this article. I don't know if there's any other information regarding this incident. Have you heard anything, you all? I no. have not heard anything more. Okay. Well, kept me out of the ground, but, you know, some of these things, they keep quite uh, close to themselves. Uh, Speaking but I, of, I've, I've flown against these guys. Uh, they used to come to uh, Australia it's many years ago now, of course. Um, so, you know, I, they're a fine bunch of guys, fine bunch of pilots, great airplane, must be getting a bit long in the tooth now. Yeah. So is that B-52. Um, <laughs> so yeah. the uh, uh, that point that you just made, Nick, is well taken because a lot of times – you know, with the civilian incidents and accidents and such, it's much more, it's much easier for us to get information about what happened and efforts made and progress and investigations, et cetera. But when it comes to the military stuff, it's very, very difficult sometimes to find out anything about what happened. And, you know, I understand that. Uh, they don't want to be too transparent because it could affect our, uh, our readiness and our whatever. Um, but uh, I don't know if we talked about this or not on a recent show. Um, I may have, I looked at it, I knew it was in the news, but there wasn't really much about this one either. This is a, a B-1 had an incident and uh, the Air Force has grounded the uh, all the B-1 bombers uh, because of a an ejection seat problem. And that's about the only thing that I read uh, in any of the news uh, sources until I was listening to that great show, The Airplane Geeks. Uh, they uh, recorded a show on Monday night and it was out uh, this week's, uh, uh, I mean, this week on Wednesday. And they were talking about this and uh, they started talking about a little bit more information about it. And I went, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that at all. And so I did a little bit more digging and I did find an article that talked about what happened or at least a little bit more detail of what happened to this B-1 flight that took off from Dias Air Force Base. And so it's flying around in uh, mid-Texas. And apparently at least one of the engines caught on fire. And the 
the commander of the B-1 bomber commanded a, a an ejection sequence. Well, not a, an ejection sequence. I guess there are a couple different ways to do this. There's an automatic ejection sequence where if the aircraft commander uh, commands it, then every one of the positions will eject in, a, in sequence. Um, and uh, I, th- I don't know exactly what order it is, but uh, there's also a way to uh, initiate an ejection uh, procedure uh, manually. And so each person... Um, does their own ejection. And I think in this case, the first one to attempt it was the, I believe they said on the Airplane Geek Show, the, uh, it doesn't say in this article right here that I'm looking at, that was the offensive uh, radar officer or offensive weapons officer in the cockpit, I think sitting behind uh, the co-pilot seat, uh, went ahead and initiated the ejection sequence and the top panel popped off uh, because there's, you know, otherwise the seat's not going to be able to get out. There's not really a, a canopy at that point uh, on that airplane where, where that person's sitting. Uh, there's a part of the structure of the aircraft. So this, this panel or this, I guess that's what you call it popped off, uh, but the seat didn't fire. So Oops. yeah, not good at all. And then the aircraft commander went, Oh, well we can't all, eject now because this guy can't get out. And so they went ahead and stayed with the airplane and landed at uh, Midland. Uh, I forgot exactly the name of the, of the uh, airport they landed at, but it was Midland, Texas. And uh, they all were uh, safely, uh, well, they, they safely departed the airplane once they got it on the ground. So everybody lived. I don't know if anybody had any injuries or not, but, um, Anyway, so they were kind of concerned by the fact that this ejection seat malfunctioned. And I think it's an Aces 2 seat. Uh, yes, you're right. Not a Martin Baker seat. No. Um, and uh, apparently the, it's well, supposed to have some cost. pretty good reliability, but um, apparently this didn't work very well. So they immediately grounded the whole fleet, and they're checking all the diff- all the seats out there to make sure that they're going to work no, when you want them to. I, I joke when I call it a knockoff. The Aces 2 is, is a very good seat. It's very sophisticated, but uh, obviously it was a problem with the command jack system. So I don't know. Yeah. So thank you to the uh, Airplane Geeks for in, in enlightening me. And I'm thinking, oh, well, let me see if I can find some more information about this. So that is an interesting thing. Hopefully we'll Must find out what happened. Must have the 10th time, though, as he brought that uh, burning airplane down. Mm-hmm get it on the ground before anything major failed. But what a predicament. Yeah, I can imagine you're like, okay, well, we've got this problem. Best plan is to eject. Oh, what do you do when you can't eject? You got to make the best of that situation. Well, there was a very similar incident on a Vulcan that had, uh, in the situation with its gear down and, uh, and a huge uh, fire coming out of the back, uh, and the guys in the back, uh, they did a man- had to do a manual bailout. And they couldn't do that with the gear stuck down. But uh, because of the intense fire, the commander lost control of the aircraft and uh, only the pilots had ejector seats. So they ejected. Uh, but unfortunately, I had to leave the three guys in the back uh, to go down with the airplane. Mm. Very sad. Yeah. yeah. Terrible decision to have to make there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I guess in this case, 
maybe the fact that it was the first one that attempted the ejection uh, had the failure. Maybe that was a good thing <laughs> because. Oh yeah. You know, can you imagine if everybody else had gone and then you're the one going, uh, yeah, it's yeah, not hey, working. Guys, guys. <laughs> hey, hey, wait. Help. Wait. <laughs> yeah, help. Yeah, just help. Hi. I'm still. still. <laughs> oh, man. No. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, moving on to the next item in our news folder. Uh, this from a media source in Orlando, Florida. I think one of the local TV stations. Um, uh, Spirit Wings Flight. 986. Take Echo 2 and hold short for Alligator. Only in Florida. Alligator halts plane at Orlando International Airport. Who, somebody sent this in to us, didn't they? It was a, a piece of reader feedback, or listener feedback, that is. Anyway, um, so apparently the Spirit Airlines flight had uh, landed, and it was taxiing toward the terminal area, and the instruction, I tried to find it on ATC, uh, liveatc.net, but I didn't have enough time to sift through because I really wasn't sure exactly when this happened. Um, but uh, apparently there was a passenger on board that uh, heard the announcement from the captain and uh, took out their uh, camera phone and took some video of the alligator crossing the taxiway in this article. It's just filled throughout the entire article talking about the gator was spotted on a runway at Orlando International Airport. Uh, the uh, pilot said that there is an alligator in the middle of the runway. I guarantee the pilot did not say that. Um, and uh, anyway, so I thought that was uh, quite interesting, a little bit odd, but kind of typical for Florida. Yeah. yeah. You know, my... as... Sorry, Karen said. Oh, as I say, my brother lived for a brief period of time in the Orlando area and the apartment complex he was in had a little retention pond. I was like, I'm never going anywhere near that because I'm sure that there are alligators living <laughs> in that thing. You just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you guys see that uh, email that uh, Liz sent to me today? Uh, it might have been an email, might have been a private PM actually, uh, suggesting a plain tale. And the story, I'm... I'm, I'm Probably not going to be able to do it as plain tale. I think the story is a bit short. But uh, there was an alligator in a uh, small airliner uh, that got loose. And um, everyone in the fuselage ran away from the alligator that was now loose in the cabin. And as such, they changed the center of gravity so much that the aircraft crashed. And I think everyone except for one perished, but the alligator survived. Well, of course. (laughs) Of course. It's got thick skin. I mean, it's not funny, but it's... No, it's not funny. I'm just going, what? Are you sure that's true? The cockroach of the of the reptile world. <laughs> well, you'll remember last year, uh, about this time, June of last year, an airplane struck and killed a 500-pound alligator at the Orlando Executive Airport. And uh, I guess last week in Florida, a woman was dragged into a pond... I shouldn't laugh. Uh, was dragged into a pond and killed... So uh, those gators are going out of con- getting out of control there. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, D. Nick wrote us uh, with this uh, article about a an incident at the Frankfurt Airport, a Lufthansa Airbus A340-300 in Star Alliance livery, again operated by Lufthansa CityLine, was damaged by a towing truck fire at Frankfurt Airport on Monday morning. Uh, the Lufthansa towing truck caught fire while bringing the aircraft from maintenance facilities to the airport, at the airport to a gate where it was scheduled to fly to Philadelphia. Emergency crews rushed to extinguish the flames. Photos from the scene show the vehicle on fire and flames rising to the cockpit area of the plane, blackening, blackening its exterior. Not only that, if you look at some of these pictures, it looks like it completely gutted. And everybody knows that the most sensitive, most expensive parts and bits of an airplane are exactly where that fire occurred. Yeah, that's right. Couldn't have picked a bag. better spot, could they? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, did you see any of the video of this, the uh, the flames coming from this uh, super tug? Oh, yeah. Pretty impressive, awesome. wouldn't it? Yeah. Wow. Um, let's see. Nick Wilson says, if this happened when you were a captain and there were passengers on board, at what point would you have ordered an aircraft evacuation? At the initial report of a fire on the tug, as soon as smoke started to enter the cockpit cabin, cockpit slash cabin, I realized that it is a difficult judgment call as evacuations often result in injuries. So I'd be interested to hear the thought processes that you would each make as a captain. So again, that was from Nick. So Dana, you're a new captain. What, uh, what would you have done in this situation? Oh, I would certainly evaluate the, uh, urgency of the situation and take a look at uh, what I'm seeing outside the window and using my senses. Uh, obviously in this case, I would believe that you could see the smoke, you could see the fire and you can probably feel it getting warm real quick. So in this case, I, I would have if, uh, ordered an evacuation out of the tail of the aircraft immediately. So, okay. but I would, I certainly would use, I mean, it wouldn't be, Oh my God, I'm going to evacuate immediately. It would, it would be a situation here. I am on the ground, being towed in, you know, with a tug that's clearly on fire underneath me, it's going to be a pretty you know, a dramatic event. But that's, of course, Monday morning quarterbacking it. So Yeah, unless you have like a window that you can see a reflection of what's happening with this tug, which is mostly underneath uh, and maybe even aft of where my cockpit window is. And maybe you're here, you're seeing people running away from the tug and and maybe you're starting to see some smoke, but you're really not sure exactly what's happening. Uh, you're relying upon other people to inform you of the severity of this fire. Nick, what would you do in this situation, you think? Well, that's right. You've, you've got to assess the situation, and that takes just a wee while. Um, I think you get a pretty good idea what's happening as soon as the flames and all that thick smoke starts coming around the cockpit. And, uh, of course, uh, I suspect as it started to penetrate the avionics bay, getting a lot of uh, warnings, I think that would have prompted a, uh, an evacuation at that point. Although, in fact, as it turned out by the looks of the rest of the aircraft, the passengers would have been completely safe. The only people at risk from that particular fire were the flight crew. But, of course, the damage that did would have certainly disabled a lot of essential um, 
circuits, uh, and it may have um, made an evacuation harder because of communication difficulties into the cabin had uh, the guy waited too long. So, um, yeah, you go with your own eyes, you go by reports, you take a, a few, um, you know, hopefully a few different opinions as to how severe it is. And if the best guy to speak to is the crew chief if he's managed to get out there in time. And he can give you a good assessment. But uh, with the fire of that severity, I think it would have been a bit of a no-brainer. I'd have put everyone out. Yeah. And just to clarify, for those who might not know, I'm pretty certain there were no passengers on this aircraft at the time. It was just being towed. I don't even think there were pilots on board. I think it was, no, just, I think it was just mechanics, being... maintenance, people, you know, dragging it uh, to the gate uh, for to prepare it for the flight to Philadelphia. It, it typically, in this scenario, you're going to have uh, one person riding the brakes and in the cockpit for communications, and you have one person towing the aircraft. That's typical of what this scenario would be like. Okay. If it is uh, another, uh, well, if it is a, a wrecked airplane, they decide not to repair it. Uh, that'll be have been two, I think, that uh, have burnt out on the ground. Uh, we've never, I think, they've ever lost a three forty uh, in a flying related accident, but they've. This will be the second that caught fire the first was quite early on in the 340s uh, life when um the ground staff it was a it was an aircraft that was parked here in a remote stand they uh use the external controls to shut a cargo door and when you do that the um yellow system hydraulic pump automatically uh, starts up to give you hydraulic power to close the big cargo door and when that door's closed the pump's supposed to shut down again but there was a fault in that uh, particular circuit and the pump continued to run and several hours later it ran itself to the point where it overheated caught fire and uh, you know through no one was around and the airplane burnt to the to, you know to the ground it the entire hull caught a, a light and where did that happen again? That was in. Um... If it, it was an Air France aircraft, uh, Isn't it in North America it, somewhere, or was it in Europe? No, I think it was in in Paris or, oh, Paris. or okay. like Yeah, I think it was in France. And Hillel went ahead and answered what I would do uh, in the situation as captain if we had passengers on board and this kind of thing occurred. He said, um, "The plane's on fire." Jeff orders an ejection, and then sings. and then neil said jeff singing might make you eject (laughs) boy i tell you what there's not a love not not a lot of love lost here they didn't love you i know if you love me you have a very odd way of showing it yeah liz mentions the air france uh 340 in toronto that was a different that was, oh, different one? Yeah, that was the one that, that crashed that, on landing, I think, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he landed deep okay. and, uh, he, on a very wet uh, a day, and he overran the end of the uh, runway. So, uh, and, and then they got everyone off safely, but the aircraft subsequently caught fire. Ah. Gotcha. Maybe that's the one I was thinking of. Different, different yeah. incident. Hey, remember the uh, incredible job done by the captain of the Sichuan? Airlines um, pilot, Chinese uh, airline, uh, that uh, successfully managed to get the Airbus 319 or 320 uh, on the ground. And, uh, oh, A319. Um, 
and the uh, co-pilot, the, the co-pilot's window burst and you know cracked and blew out, and the uh, co-pilot got sucked halfway out the window before they were able to pull him back in. Uh, turns out that uh, there was it the the uh, airline or was it the I'm trying to recall now who actually gave them the money. Let me read this. The Chinese pilot Liu Shijuan was awarded the nearly 5 million yuan, yuan and the title of Hero Captain of China's Civil Aviation. Um, he was operating the plane. And by the way, that works out to be roughly $776,912. So uh, three quarters of a million dollars uh, for, uh, you know, for, for doing this incredible feat. Um, job. Yeah, true. But you know what? Somebody offered me that. I wouldn't turn it down. Um, he doesn't look very happy about it. Well, this was the actual briefing where, yeah, if you look at the picture, we'll he's give thinking, you three quarters of a million dollars. Three quarters of a million. What's the matter? I think he was hoping for like 10 million won. <laughs> Not enough. Uh, let's see. Other members of the airline crew were also awarded for successfully handling the emergency. Uh, the uh, the 27-year-old co-pilot received 1 million yuan, which is $156,228, I guess, at the exchange rate at the time. Uh, the deputy captain, I don't know what that means, uh, was awarded 2 million yuan, which is 312,456. And what's a deputy captain? Like I another crew no member? Idea. Yeah. I know they may have had a relief captain on board or something or okay. a, a check captain. Yeah. Six other crew members were given 1 million yuan between them, according to this uh, Chinese media source. Again, I'll say it to do their job. Yes. They're already getting paid to do their job. Well, still, I like the idea of yeah, being, I do too. <laughs> big pockets full of money every now and again. That, that's great. Yeah. For a job. I, I had an engine failure and I landed successfully. Can I have a pocket full of money? So every time a doctor puts a person on a table that doesn't kill them, they should get a reward? They do. <laughs> they, they get a nice paid, sum of money. <laughs> they get paid more money than you and I could earn in a lifetime. That's not true. <laughs> but you can, you know, we were talking about urban legends earlier. Yeah. Uh, now, now, if somebody wanted to sign a book deal with them or give them, you know, uh, money for speaking engagements or, you know, going out on, you know, tour or something like that, great. But, they're getting paid by the company to do the job, and now they're getting bonuses was to it do even, the job. Did we discover, was it the company or was it the government that did that? I, I, uh, it doesn't really know, say. I have a feeling it was the government, but I, it doesn't say so here. I think it was. I, I kind of got that that uh, take from it, that it, was, that it was the government. So, that so, so answer me this question then. The Southwest incident on LaGuardia. Did they get a bonus? Did they get a big payday? Yeah, I think the Chinese government the gave them some money too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's their job. Sounds about right. It's their job. So how do you feel about this? Day? No, never mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's just thinking, man, I could have a really nice try. What, what's, is there such thing as a quadra pontoon? No, but it'd be a hydrofoil. A hard, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Last uh, thing we have here, I just added this at the last minute. Um, uh, in a recent development in the uh, air cargo carriers crash last year uh, at the uh, Charleston, West Virginia airport, uh, 
Um, let's see. The on on June fifth, this is from the um, uh, Aviation Herald. On June fifth, twenty eighteen, surveillance videos were published, and they opened their investigation docket. The NTSB did. The docket contains SMS text messages by the first officer that she exchanged with her friends. One snippet quite highlighting the atmosphere on the flight deck. And I guess this is when they were flying. The uh, first officer text somebody. Captain is sleeping. I'm going to need you to keep me entertained for the rest of the flight. Her friend says, wait, wait, wait. There's a pilot and a co-pilot. And right now the pilot is asleep and the co-pilot is texting. Is that accurate? And then the first officer writes back. Yes. And, uh, the Why does it sound off- like the friend has a better grasp of the situation than <laughs> yes. the actual first officer? <laughs> the friend's a little bit more concerned little than more the first concerned. officer is. The first officer hinted to her friends that the captain, whom she had flown with earlier, too, was excellent in flying VFR. She had concerns, however, with his IFR flying skills. A ground witness reported he saw the aircraft just below the clouds overflying him and thought the aircraft was on a VOR Alpha approach to runway 5. He only realized later that this had been the accident aircraft. The NTSB reported surveillance video showing the aircraft in an unusual nose-down attitude and a left bank while attempting to align with runway 5. Uh, The NTSB also released a study-slash-analysis of the video. Again, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a second. Hopefully you guys were able to look at that. Suggesting that the aircraft descended at 2,309 feet per minute and 92 plus or minus 4 knots over the ground at the time of first contact with the runway. The aircraft left uh, had a left bank angle of 42 degrees and a pitch angle of 14 degrees nose down. The cloud base was estimated at 683 feet plus or minus 60 feet based on the video. And uh, a link here in the article to the YouTube. Uh, well, it's it's on YouTube, but it's a uh, surveillance video that they released. And uh, you can clearly see this airplane coming in. Again, it was a Schwartz 330 uh, propeller turboprop, uh, twin turboprop airplane. And it... Um, <laughs> You see it come into view in the surveillance video and you go, oh my gosh. I mean, it's like in a very steep bank at a very nose low attitude and it just prangs on the runway. And then it just, you know, kind of does a couple flips and off the runway and then down a ravine. And both crew members were killed in this accident. Did any of you have a chance to look at this video? I've seen stills of the video, like right at just about the moment of first impact. It's Definitely an unusual attitude. It's jarring. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you get a chance to look at it, yeah. uh, either yeah, of you? Uh, terrible. Yeah. It's, it, that is, uh, I, I wouldn't even, I don't even, can't even imagine how you get into that type of scenario. Other than maybe the aircraft was stalled. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the approach speed would be for that kind of an airplane. Probably. It's not very, I, I've actually sat in the jump seat on one. It's, yeah. Pretty it's, slow, it's right? actually, it is very slow. It's in, yeah. in the 80 to 90 knot range, okay. I think is correct. So they should have, yeah, they should so have been flying. was probably reasonable 92 knots, but yeah. not coming, I mean. But it's definitely not the way you want to approach a runway. That's no, for sure. No. Yeah. And a 2,300 foot per minute. Descent right at yeah, no. a little high. <laughs> now, just for your information, dear listeners, um, for uh, all of us, I believe, all of our uh, airlines, the uh, stabilized approach criteria requires no more than or, or something less than 1,000 feet per minute 
uh, in the last stage of your approach and landing uh, below 1,000 feet. If you uh, have a higher rate of descent than 1,000 feet per minute, you are required to go around because it's just a situation where there's a chance that you can't successfully uh, get a get Yeah, at that point, you just don't have enough time to make the necessary corrections for a safe yeah. landing. And this is more than twice that uh, rate of descent. So yeah, uh, not stabilized in the least bit. And the left bank angle of 42 degrees. Yeah, a little high, a little high. Okay. I mean, he did, if you watch, I mean, I'm sitting here watching this. <laughs> he did. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not pretty. It's, it's hard to watch. No, it, that's terrible to watch. Yeah. Wow. You can see why there's no way that they could have survived that. No, and you know Charleston, the airport is kind of on the edge of a, a ravine. So as soon as they departed the runway, the it's, aircraft it's actually on, went down the the side of the cliff there. It, it's not on the edge. Of, it's action cleared off Mountain Hill or Hill. It just it yeah. they shaved the top of it off. And I've been there in phone into Charlie West a lot. I used to fly a CRJ two hundred in there, and that's a very short runway for that airplane. Very challenging airport, especially very, for that kind very, of airplane. Very challenging. I've always, when I went in and out of there, always looked down the side of the, the hill, and it's it's a significant drop. Thinking, oh, I would never want to go down that side of the hill, because once you come off, it's 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 straight down. Mm. It's 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 almost pure pure vertical straight down. So uh, it's now what would the stalling speed of that thing be? Because it was doing 92 knots over the ground when it contacted the runway. Yeah, we were just talking about that. That that was kind of a normal uh, um, approach speed. Dana said that he okay. uh, rode jump seat on it. So I think it, it's it's not a, a terribly fast aircraft. You know, while while we're talking about, it, I'll go ahead and, and um, I'll Google the um, speeds on it on it and get back with us. But it's not a terribly fast airplane. I remember it cruises. Right around 200 knots, somewhere right around there. Cruise speed um, 190. Yeah, somewhere right around there. Shorts. And uh, uh, stall speed is 85, uh, 73 knots. Sorry. Yeah, you know, it's basically a flying box, and the the bottom and the top of the uh, of the fuselage actually, if you really take a good look at it, um, will um, acts as an airfoil. So it's it's got this really tiny skinny wing and it looks like a flying box. It's just a straight you know straight sides on both sides, and the top of the uh, the airframe is is curved in in a uh, uh, um, convex concave concave, right? Concave yeah. convex. If it's pooping out, pooping out, it would be a concave convex. 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 Yeah, yeah. So it's flat. It's almost flat on the bottom. It just looks like an aerofoil. The, the actual fuselage in, in it, so it it gave it its performance. Um, I've where I've been on it and, and where I worked it was was uh, with Business Express Airlines. They were a big operator of them back in the uh, um, early '90s. So um, it it's a very unique airplane, unpressurized, and uh, you know it just I, to watch that, knowing that I've been on that airplane that much is just. Mm. Captain, incoming message. All right, let's start with our first feedback in the feedback folder from, we're again, not really sure how to pronounce his name. He just wants us to call him G-Man. And he says, hi team, thanks for all your great work. I'll send some audio feedback soon, but I look for the 
uh, time to do it. Uh, or, but I look for the time to do it. Another, uh, I guess me, maybe he means while I look for the time to do it. Another topic for discussion is in special for Dr. Steph. See link below. And he gives us a link to an article in an Australian publication. Do doctors online have the responsibility with the patient welfare or more with the airline profits? Coming from a doctor's husband, I'd like to think that once a situation on board develops, the patient's care and safety comes first, as widely claimed by all airlines. But is it? Second, to the captains of the show, do you have the authority to go against an onboard doctor recommendation to land as soon as possible and proceed to the or or to proceed to the final destination? I look forward to hearing back from you. Keep the blue side up. Thanks for keeping the dream of one day becoming an airline pilot like you. Cheers from G-Man. Okay, so the article from the Sydney Morning Herald and Bloomberg. Is there a doctor on the plane? Airlines often hope there isn't. And uh, so, shall I read any of this article? It kind of talks about it. I think we can summarize maybe. So basically what happened, there was, uh, this was back in May 2016, there was a flight, uh, United Airlines flight from Chicago to Rome, and a passenger on board suffered acute pancreatitis, um, which hopefully no one here or anyone listening has had the pleasure of that. But it's not a, a pleasant illness to have. At best, it produces a lot of severe abdominal stomach pain. At worst, it can end you up in the ICU in Jacques, so it can be a significant medical emergency. Um, that being said, not there, so I don't know exactly what this particular gentleman's condition at the time was, but uh, it sounds like what happened. Um, there was, uh, you know, the, the gentleman was sick. Um, the There was a, a doctor on board who was there and gave his input the airline used their medical consultants, which I believe the majority of large airlines, um, at least here in the U.S., Europe, probably around the world, do have a medical agency that they consult with for in-flight emergencies, such as medical emergencies. And um, you know, the, the goal there is to pool all the information and resources and figure out the best course of action. Uh, and there's a lot of factors to take into account. So in this case, it sounds as though the... Um, Flight did not divert. It continued on to Rome, I believe. And uh, the patient and his attorney essentially say that the patient was in severe, uh, or the man suffering from the acute pancreatitis was in severe pain and distress for seven hours of the flight, which is a long time. So again, not there. Um, I know G-Man's got some specific questions. I'll try to address that first and then get into some other issues here. So do doctors online, and I think he's referring to the consulting agency. Um, in this case, it was MedAir, and I think they consult for several different large airlines in the U.S. Um, do the doctors in those companies have the responsibility with the patient welfare or more with the airline profits? I can't answer that question. However, the reason that they're there is to help airline staff make appropriate um, decisions for the health safety and wellness of all those on board, including the person suffering the medical uh, issue or potentially emergency. I do know that the, uh, you know, I have not worked for one of these companies. Generally, they staff emergency room physicians and they staff physicians who are knowledgeable of aeromedical factors because things can be different even at cabin altitudes um, in terms of what can affect patients or what can affect people with chronic illnesses or acute illnesses. And, um, there's a lot of factors that go into it. However, I, I, like I said, G 
G-Man, I do not work for one of these companies, but the physicians, um, I would think, would have the best interests of the person with the medical emergency in mind in this case. But there are a lot of factors going on there. And again, they're not the ones actually with eyes on the patient. So they're relying on information that comes from anyone on board who might have medical knowledge, might be able to assess the situation firsthand. And then, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, it's a, it's a, basically a decision-making process between the crew along with that medical company to decide what the best course of action is. Correct? Yeah, that's exactly right, Stu. I mean, uh, we actually do provide eyes on effectively for uh, the medics on the ground who we consult with uh, through a natty piece of equipment that uh, the cabin crew have, which has cameras, headsets, um, vitals uh, are gathered through the equipment uh, in the uh, magic box so that uh, the doctors uh, on the ground can see heart traces, they can see blood oxy, they can see blood pressure, they can physically see the patient. Um, and, of course, uh, they can talk directly to the person who is attending to them. Um, so they are much closer in the loop in the sort of equipment we have on board. But um, we started using this really to prevent unnecessary uh, diversions. Uh, the cost of diversions um, is high. And when you divert for a passenger that turns out to have had flatulence and not a heart attack, uh, it all becomes a bit silly. Uh, in addition, we had guys uh, diverting to airfields that were very unsuitable for the sort of problem that their patient might have. So, you know, you dive into the closest diversion, which might be, say, somewhere in northern Canada, to find that they've only got the most rudimentary of uh, hospitals nearby. And uh, you then have to fly the patient on using a medical evacuation to get them to a decent hospital where they can be treated. So um, the combination of information we get through the guys on the ground who advise us uh, are they can analyze um, the patient's situation. They can advise the captain as to where the best hospital, uh, the closest and best hospital is, which may involve flying for some time uh, to get there. But if you think about it, uh, it's better to have an a hospital that's very close to the airport, for example, then land at an airport with a hospital that's two hours away. You might as well fly for two hours and get to a, a better hospital or a better airport that's got better medical facilities nearby. Exactly. Uh, all those, and they have all this information to their fingertips. They have experts in all the various fields, whereas the uh, qualified medical volunteer you might get on board well, the crew don't really know what their expertise level is. They may not have any information about the particular complaint that the uh, ill passenger has. Um, we've even had people volunteering who aren't actually medical doctors. <laughs> so, yep. uh, yeah, I mean, you, know. you put out a request for, for volunteers, you really don't know what you're going to get. And, I mean, certainly when I'm traveling, I'm not carrying any official documentation that says what my qualifications are. And... You know, when you think about it, um, there's all different kinds of doctors and specialists out there. Um, you know, I'm in the non-surgical management of neck pain, back pain, you know, musculoskeletal aches and pains. So if that happens to be your particular ailment on a plane, first of all, those aren't emergencies that are going to require us to land. But if you are having 
a bigger medical emergency, uh, you know, if the person sitting next to me is an emergency room doctor, I'm going to be deferring to them because they've got much more recent um, experience in dealing with those types of conditions than I have. Um, so just, just in the situation that you had when you exactly. were flying. So um, the fact is that um, we use uh, the medical advisors on the ground. Um, they are all excellent doctors. I don't believe any of them uh, would ever put a patient's life at risk in order to try and save money for the airline. Now, I think that's a completely gratuitous uh, suggestion uh, and is irresponsible on the part of uh, the writer of this article. Yes, and I, I don't uh, think there's any airline that hopes that there isn't someone on board who can at least offer some assistance because, uh, you know, the way Nick's airline functions with their system, it's it's that's great that the people on the ground have access to, you know, the heart monitor tracings, to the pulse ox, to the blood pressure information, can actually see the patient. Um, I know a lot of airlines don't have that, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but someone with at least a little bit of experience who can put eyes on a patient can usually tell the difference between someone who is sick, very sick, legitimately sick, and someone who looks okay, you know, and taking into a lot of different, a lot of different factors into account, such as their vital signs, their presentation, how they're interacting with you. And all of those things come into to play when you're making those decisions. So it's never a cut and dry thing. You know, you take a look at this flight, it was Chicago to Rome, depending on the flight plan that day. I have, I have no idea when this gentleman actually became sick. I don't think they say. They could have been well over, you know, far northern stretches of Canada heading across the Atlantic. And like Nick was saying, there may not have been a suitable option for many hours. And at that point, you know, do you elect to continue to the destination knowing that it's going to be just a little bit further? Or do you stop sooner? And that's probably all that was going through their, you know, part of what was going through their decision-making process, at least. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, now this sort of thing annoys me because uh, this is just uh, uh, suggesting that uh, trained doctors whose job it is, and these people aren't just there to serve the airlines, they're in a working everyday hospital. Uh, they understand the difference between um, doing the best for the patient uh, and, and not. And I, I think it's incredibly rude to them to suggest they wouldn't always do the best. For the absolutely. Patient. And some of the best advice that was ever given to me was, you know, if there's ever a doubt about how aggressive you're going to manage a situation or how aggressive a recommendation you're going to give, make the one that's going to allow you to sleep well at night, knowing that you did everything correct or everything that you could for that patient. So if you have any doubt at all that that's an emergency situation and that that person needs to be on the ground sooner rather than later, that's the recommendation that you make. And if yeah. it turns out to be something benign, great for the patient, you know, and yeah. you just go forward. Finally, G-Man, the decision on where the aircraft goes and when it lands is entirely the captain's. Okay, now he does it in consultation with lots of other people, and uh, we have a, a specialist uh, thing we can or um, combined decision-making team we can draw together, which includes uh, the doctor, operations, um, the captain, uh, and anyone else of uh, the expertise we need for that situation. And we get on the SAP phone and we have a conference call, basically, with all those voices present and come to a decision. But Find the the final decision always rests on the shoulders of the captain. He's the one that actually goes, yes, okay, I agree with all you guys. We'll go here, or no, I see a better solution. We'll go there, uh, and then he justifies it afterwards if there's any doubt as to whether that decision was good. 
Yeah, I agree with Nick. I think this article is a lot of hype and trying to be a bit controversial and inflammatory. Yep. Yep. Great responsibility uh, with great responsibility comes, no, with great power comes great responsibility. Is that what the that saying is? Great money. Great responsibility gives you great money. <laughs> and exposure to risk and yeah. lawsuits. <laughs> nah. But yeah, um, as, as Nick said, pilot in command means what it says. Buck pilot stops with you command. all. Buck stops with us. All I can do is make recommendations. Yep. And a smart captain does that and you know, gets as much information as he can, he or she can, and then makes the decision. All right. Great question, G-Man. Hope that helped. Paul writes in, and we kind of uh, talked a little bit about this uh, last episode at the very end. Uh, Paul Baker here. Thanks so much to you, Captain Jeff, and the APG crew for your great shows. I'm behind in APG episodes. The last one listened to, Dana, mentioned that it would not be long before he would be promoted to captain. If the episode covering this exciting event has been aired, could you please give me its number? Well, unfortunately, Captain Dana didn't make it. No, I didn't. No, it's all over. (laughs) I don't know what number. This number uh, or last number, maybe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, speaking of being behind, didn't know if you were aware of American Airlines new shrunken bathrooms on the 747. Now he says 747. I think he means the 737 Max. I understand that there is only a 24-inch entryway and that coach passengers can either enter the bathroom with the straightforward approach or they can access the facility by backing in. <laughs> I guess you just have to make the choice before you go in because you can't turn around there. Is that what he's implying? Anyway, from the description in the Forbes article, see attached link, which we'll have in the show notes. These things are so small, in my opinion, that if a mouse had to use one, he would exit the bathroom hunchbacked. (laughs) Keep up the good work. Best wishes. Thank you, Paul. Uh, The uh, article to which he is referring and... uh, Forbes.com, American Airlines, tiny new bathrooms, test limits of what U.S. passengers will put up with. And uh, believe it or not, it's, uh, this is the same, they have a picture here of the sink. And it's, it's a very small, very narrow, like very a, shallow. Tiny. <laughs> like a, like an I don't think I'd fit. Are you familiar with those in hospitals? The little, you know, thing that they give you if you're going to puke Pee? or feel sick. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah just the little catch basin. Yeah. Well, the thing that says you can only wash one hand at a time. I hate it. <laughs> uh, that looks accurate. Yeah, not it's not huge. It's efficient. Um that would be one word for it. <laughs> uh yeah. So yeah. You know, I can see what they're trying to do here. They're trying to maximize the trying to number of more seats, seats into the aircraft. Uh, and they're thinking, well, people really don't use the bathroom, do they? <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, I think this I, will not go over well in the U.S., just based on our population. On the other hand, though, how many uh, people actually wash their hands? <laughs> it's sadly probably not a huge number. I know we don't want to talk about that. I'm not sure what the toilet looks like in this picture or this article i just see the sink and it doesn't really show let me see if the... i can find some other pictures because i think okay. this has been... so let's see it doesn't look like a lot of mile high club uh, activity probably well, if you, can, you deserve an award <laughs> my, 
Can I be rude for a second? How flight tents can go into this place and some of it sing international flight tents? I'm going to make it in. So the, no, oh, I'm, talking, I'm, talking, I'm, talking, I'm sorry. <laughs> How am I going to get into that size bathroom? Well, that's what I'm just saying. I mean, like the American population in general, we're not small people, hey, generally speaking. Staff. I'm including. Oh, you're tiny. I, I'm excluding myself. <laughs> and just, Leg weighs more than you do. Speaking for So I know what you do. Remember, was it last week uh, where we talked about the guy that uh, they moved him to a different seat and then he just pulled out his hose and started uh, urinating on the oh, seat yes. in front of him? <laughs> so I'm looking at a different picture that actually shows where the toilet is. So in the picture that you all are looking at, um, the toilet. So you're looking at the door that goes back into the um, cabin of the aircraft there. Is what mm-hmm. you, so the door in front of you, the uh, sink, if you can call it that, on the right. And then behind that is the toilet. You can kind of see it there. I think the little red uh, the reflection. thing is the flush button. Okay. And But uh, so it's minuscule. There is no room there at all. And the sink actually cuts into some of that space that you would actually walk in. I don't know how you would turn around. I mean, that would be tight for me even. What do they call those little things? Uh, tiny houses or whatever? Tiny houses, yeah. Yeah. I've been in tiny houses with bathrooms yeah. much larger than this. <laughs> oh, really? In fact, this past weekend, really? a contractor who's working on my house builds tiny houses. Oh yeah, and uh, I got to see an example of one. They're really neat, but the bathroom was much larger than this. It had a shower and everything. It was nice. Wow. So yeah, uh, compare this to what? Which airline was it, uh, Steph? That you actually took a shower? Ah, uh, that was Etihad. Etihad. Yeah. And. Oh. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> a little bit more room in that one, right? <laughs> not, not even close. And yeah. actually, one of the nicest um, laboratories I've used in flight was actually on Turkish Airlines. It was a nice big bathroom. I was able to change into my pajamas there. Had Were nice, you like, in uh, probably business class or something? Business class, yeah. Do they have, they have a Turkish bath there as well? That, well, that would That's have been huge. gravy. On- the whole lower level, instead of cargo, they have a Turkish bath. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> A lot of sweaty men sitting around with towels on. <laughs> Smoking those little things. What do they yeah. call those things with the hoses? Listen, I wouldn't mind a, a Turkish bath on a Bubble, bubble. Hookers? Hookers. I think they call hookers. Yeah, that's it. You can't say that on show, can you? Hookah. No, I'm talking about hookahs. Hookah. Hey, what do you think of those hookahs? Those are awesome hookahs. Anyway, this is tiny and... That's what she said. It is, actually... Um, it's what you said. Actually, you said it's tiny. I know. Yeah, That's, uh, I was agreeing. All right. <laughs> I think we we talked enough about this. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate I call, it. I call that a really crappy situation. Yeah, really. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure I can find what a piss shot here. <laughs> Continuing on, uh, Ivor writes or types. I've just read an article on the progress of the single pilot add-on element of the paper making its way to legislation or not. I'm interested to know how the single pilot of the future would gain hands-on flying experience at the moment this is called being a first officer. Then you progress if you're good enough, like Captain Dana. Oh, how stupid of me. They'll just knock that training out in the simulator. But seriously, there is enough against this idea already. The article I was reading highlighted how much of a team effort an emergency was 
It also pointed out, in more polite terms, that it cheapened cargo pilots against passenger pilots. Ah, they're just box shippers. I know you boys and girls are not sold on the idea, but it's a real threat. It's being dressed up as R&D at the moment. How worried should we be? Love and kisses from Ivor. See you at Fumbra. Yes, Ivor, we will. And uh, yeah, it's it's of great concern to all of us. I'm not sure what the status is of the legislation. I don't think it's passed the Senate yet. And I'm not sure if they retracted that uh, provision in the bill. Um, is that something Tina? that they can even legislate, though? Honestly? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, you know, they can say, okay, so it's like getting your foot in the door. Well, it's only for them to do research and development, quote unquote, uh, on this idea. But uh, yeah, as Ivor said, he knows how we all feel about this. This is ridiculous. You need to have at least two pilots up in the cockpit uh, because when things start going bad, they go bad very, very quickly. And it is very, very easy to be overwhelmed, if, especially if you're the only one there. Um, so, and I don't care whether you're carrying boxes or you're carrying passengers. Uh, the, that, the flying itself is no different. Yeah. I don't no. know why they make that distinction. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're using the quantity of human life on board as the distinction, but the flying itself is no different. So that's not really a valid argument or excuse. Right. And these, and these airplanes are flying over populated areas yeah. and uh, it doesn't matter whether there are and, boxes or people in them. You know? Oh, they're just going to try and use it to set a precedent so that they can say, oh, look, these aircraft have been flying around perfectly safely with any one pilot. Let's make it uh, um, suitable for everyone to fly around like that. Yep. You're right. And I'm hoping they won't succeed. Yeah, it's thin, thin end of the wedge. Although I had an FAA uh, person on my jump seat on Monday who seemed to think that it was going to happen. Of course, that was just one individual FAA person. So I'm hoping that he's wrong. No offense, sir, but I really wow. hope you're wrong. I don't think it'll happen in our uh, careers. No, it won't. Definitely I think not. he's. I think he's going to be wrong. Yeah. Ivor, have you ever heard of that guy? He, he sends us um, his yeah. feedback occasionally. Shade of de deja vu, I should yeah. say. Yeah. He says, I know it barely comes up as a discussion point, but I must ask a question on aircraft loading. Nice of me to raise a new subject, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about loading and center of gravity and all kinds of that sort of thing in the last few episodes. Anyway, going on. Well, here we go. I'm just after your opinion. I watched an episode of Air Crash Investigation recently. This was about the sad loss of the 747 leaving Bagram Air Base with military equipment. The load coming loose from its moorings during during climb-out from the airport, this, as we know, sealed the fate of the aircraft and crew. What shocked me was the load was held in place with straps. The issue was these weren't used correctly. Uh, he goes on, I wouldn't be happy unless great big heavily armored vehicles, as this flight was carrying, were held in place by substantial chains. I know this would add weight, but it would be simpler to load and safer in the long run. I'd be interested in what you good people think, particularly Captain Jeff, as he used to fly the B-17. Or was it the C-17? Neither. Nice try, Ivor. Very, very funny. B-17. <laughs> it was a C-141. Thank you very much. But it was pretty clever anyway. So 
I'll give you credit. Um, yeah, well, apparently the airline, I guess the airline that was doing this kind of flying in the same type of airplane before the national uh, airlines flight started doing this kind of stuff was using the same system with these straps, but apparently they were using, as you say, using them incorrectly. Uh, and, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, uh, chains would be probably better, but again, the downside. I was going to say that, you know, in this case, there were a number of factors with this, you know, the root issue is that the straps were not used and were not used correctly, but I think it's because the folks who they had hired to load were a didn't understand how to appropriately interpret the information about how much weight the straps could carry. They didn't know how to apply them correctly. And I think they were loading additionally more of those vehicles than the, the aircraft could actually safely carry as well with the, with the straps, if I remember correctly. I might be wrong on that third point. Not but sure about that point, yeah. Maybe not on that third point. There, actually, Lane, I think just the way that they would have had to arrange the straps, they wouldn't have been able to load as many in there. No. I could be that wrong. Could be. That could be. But either way, you know, this was a number of things. Um, and yeah, we we agree with you. <laughs> if you're going to be moving around large, heavily armored, heavily armored vehicles that are weighty like that they need to be held in place appropriately and correctly and it's it's sad that it can be allowed to get to that level of lack of oversight where it's not being done properly and unfortunately i think the person who was in charge of putting all that information together and making sure it was done correctly a didn't have the appropriate information wasn't trained appropriately and didn't realize he was doing it incorrectly it wasn't done intentionally yeah uh lane makes a good Sorry, go Jeff, go ahead. I was going to say, Lane makes a good point in the chat room. Improperly used chains are no safer than improperly used straps. Yeah, that's the point I was going to make. You can have a chain there that has a braking strain that uh, can be less than a strap. So unless you're talking about anchor chains, huge, great big things. And no, straps are fine. And uh, they, should be, um, they should be regulated so that you've got the right strength and they're at the right angles uh, and all of which were a bit of a problem with this particular system they used they they didn't have uh, a properly documented uh, uh, securing system available to them and they did the best they could and didn't get it right and i think they didn't well, use as many as they were supposed to either uh, if I, that seems to come to mind as well. and what i was going to say is you know when you're talking about aircraft you're talking about weight and when you talk about weight, you're talking about uh, you know the, the the chains would add a significant amount of weight, especially heavy chains like that. Whereas the tensile strength of of these straps that are designed to hold this type of uh, a weight a much less you know weigh much much less than chains of significant strength of equal strength would be able to hold. So it's a big difference when it comes to the amount of uh, amount of strength and chains that uh, that straps can hold. And for the weight. Very yep. good point. Yeah, I think they, you know, not only were they maybe not using enough, but they were applying them in such a way that it didn't actually cause the straps to meet their full um, requirement for the amount of weight that they could potentially hold. You know, they were applying them at the wrong angle to actually produce that amount of rated weight. Sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, if, if, you, if it doesn't matter whether it's a strap or whether it's a chain, if, if you're not using it properly... Uh, you know, chain has a, a tensile strength that it's going to fail as well. So if, if you're not using it properly, you're not trained properly, as you, you talked about, Dr. Steph, uh, you know, if it's not applied in a proper manner, 
then it's not going to matter what you have there. You, I mean, you could have, you could have, uh, you know, the only thing that would have saved them, I think, is if the thing was completely full and nothing could move. Period. You know, if the, even if it shifted a little bit, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have made a big difference. But you know, it wasn't completely full, so things were able to shift around. Yeah, so. it was a tragic, uh, tragic incident. Yes. All right. Um, thank you, Ivor, for the double feedback. And uh, I know that you didn't send them all at the same time. Sometimes it has a tendency to uh, kind of get backlogged here at the APG. And thank you uh, again to our producer, Liz, for uh, kind of coming up with uh, the running order for feedback on each and every show. We really appreciate her hard work. And uh, if you want your feedback played, I think she only charges, what, 20 bucks or something like that? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a small. It's a small fee. Kickback fee. Just yeah, <laughs> just kidding. A little bit of I squeeze. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Steven must have paid Liz a lot of money because he sent us in some audio feedback, which is uh, almost 20 minutes long. So, but it's good. It's worth every minute of it. And Steven, why don't you enlighten us about what you feel what you think about the CFI, uh, Certified Flight Instructor Shortage. Hey, APG crew, Steve and Ivy, the uh, survey pilot from West Georgia. Um, Going to leave some audio feedback. Um, I was flying around the other day and was listening to episode um, 326 uh, regarding the pilot shortage. Um, where have all the CFI has gone? Um They've all gone to the airlines, in case anybody didn't know. Anyway, um, I I just wanted to leave some feedback. Um, there were some points covered. Um, Dana, um, Jeff, Steph, Nick, they all hit on some couple different things regarding CFIs, training, everything. But I just wanted to leave some feedback about the different avenues you can go about for g- going from not being a pilot to being an airline pilot or, or being a charter pilot, survey pilot, what, whatever you want to do. So um, let's start with the probably the quote easiest and most cost effective end quote um, way to be a pilot. Um, so is probably the military route. Um, Jeff and Captain Nick have both went this route. Um, which, by the way, thank you all for both serving in the military, both in the United States and the United Kingdom. Um, so if you go the military route, um, you're going to have three to four years of training. Um, and if you go to the Air Force, um, you're going to have a 10-year contract. So basically, you're committing to 13 to 14 years of flying in the United States Air Force Um flying whatever you get assigned after training, anywhere from an F-35 to a C-130, um, which you may or may not like. Um, but you're also going to get a bonus, I believe, of $150,000 distributed um, evenly across those 10 years, um, which is a, it's a pretty good bonus, um, especially for getting free flight training and all that good stuff. Not to mention a great retirement if you commit to 20 years in the military. Um, I'm not too sure what the Army or the Navy does, but I know the Air Force, um, they definitely are giving out um, up to $150,000 over 10 years. If you're willing to commit to 15 years, that's uh, three to four years of training and then additional 10 years. And, you know, that all varies depending on the training timeline. 
Um, the good thing is, though, um, once you get 750 hours in at the military route here in the States, you are um, qualified to get a restricted ATP, which is a um, certificate which allows you to fly commercially in the United States. Um, I know there's a couple of APG listeners um, that have done this. Um, so basically you get 750 hours in, um, and then you can go to the airlines and go work as well as be in the military, um, which there's some advantages to that, which I won't go into, but, um, I believe there are definitely some advantages of doing it that way. Um, the other way of doing it, um, going from zero to being an airline pilot or whatever you want to do. Um, is the 141 school route, which is a particular structured training program that is available at various flight schools, including most, or I say most, a lot of colleges here in the United States. Um, Basically, you're going to go from zero to a commercial certificate and possibly CFI if you want to go that route. Um, And you're going to shell out anywhere at a just a 141 school non-college so you're not going to get your um restricted atp certificate which i'll go into in a second um so you're going through this program from zero to um 250 hours possibly um to get your commercial and or cfi and you're going to shell anywhere between 60 and ninety thousand dollars And that's just tuition. That's not including your test or your housing. Um, If you go the college route, um, you can shout anywhere between um, $75,000 and $200,000. And I don't know about you, but $200,000 buys a nice house in most parts of the states. Um, So, and then not only with that, um, the College 141 programs um, tend to have a delay um, with their training programs because they don't have CFIs to be able to teach the students that are coming through. So there's, you, you can be delayed in getting your restricted ATP certificate and graduating the college, which also means more time as well as not being able to graduate on schedule and delaying whatever future plans you may have. So that's kind of the plus and minuses of doing a 141 stretch program. Um, you definitely have some advantages of getting a uh, certificate at a lower amount of hours, but you're going to pay a higher cost for it. Um, and then if you decide to be a CFI, you can stay in those schools that are 141, either at the uh, just a regular 141 school or a college program, and build your hours that way and uh, get to the airlines. Um, I think most schools um, say you can go from being a CFI to being at the airlines in probably about a year and a half to two years. um, Just depends on the school. Um, The other route you can go, and this is what I did, um, is a Part 61 school, which is a less structured training environment. Um, It's a little bit um, cheaper than going 141. Um, well, depending on what flight school you go to, I want to preface that. Um, the, the certificate requirements are a little bit higher as well as the rating requirements. Um, you kind of go at your own pace and it's very dependent on the CFI you get paired with. Um, I think it's worth pointing out that not all CFIs are created, created equal. 
I think Dana pointed this out in the last episode. Um, there's some CFIs that want to go from being a CFI to the airlines rather quickly. There's others that are very dedicated to being a CFI. I think um, Matt Trescott and his uh, podcast he, ha- he has um, is a prime example of him being dedicated to being a CFI. Um, I can tell you, though, that he is one of the rare people nowadays that is dedicated to being a CFI. Um, most guys um, are wanting to get to air on as quick as possible, and... Um, from my experience, personally, do not care about um, the quality of the training that you're receiving, um, which I think creates various issues, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, but, you know, the Part 61 program, that's more at your pace. Um, you know, if you want to do one flight lesson a month, you're more than welcome to do that. It'll take you a long time, but you are welcome to do that. Um, a lot of it requires a lot of self-study on your part, um, letting your CFI know if you're ready to move on to the ne- next step, and um, things like that. You have to be very di- dilig- diligent in um, teaching yourself and um, learning um, to be able to move through the steps of being Part 61, which um, are basically the same steps of 141, just not as a, in a structured environment. Um, one of the main differences, 141, they have stage checks to gauge how far along you are in your training as to where 61 is more of the CFI and you determining where you're at in your training. Um, so that's basically the kind of the three main um, areas of getting your flight training going from zero to being um, a CFI and then eventually um, a um, airline pilot or whatever you decide on doing but um, there is some ways you can save some money doing that Um, I know me personally um, I don't think a lot of people will agree with me on this but you can save a little bit of money um, if you do your due diligence research and um, have the motivation you can own your own aircraft and um, build some time towards um, your commercial certificate or whatever else you're working on um, and getting time that way. Um, I know for me, um, I got my private certificate and then bought my own aircraft for about the cost of a um, small sedan and built time that way. Um, I was paying myself roughly $35 an hour versus $115 an hour at a flight school. Um, now the flight school did include fuel, so if you're gonna balance things out, uh, I was paying roughly with fuel $55 an hour versus $115 an hour at a flight school. Um, and I did about 150 hours in my first aircraft that I owned. So you can save a good bit of money that way if you do your due diligence and find a good, good mechanically sound aircraft and are motivated to fly every day. If you're not motivated to fly every day, don't own your own aircraft because it's just going to sit there and cost you money. Just my personal opinion. Take it what you will. Um, but if you do decide to go that route of owning your own aircraft you and flying all you want to, you're going to gain a lot of experience um, in dealing with ATC, um, cross-country flight planning, um, aircraft mechanics, ownership skills, and decision making. Um, I think that benefits you as a pilot in a lot of different ways um, as far as career progression and all that. But it's really what you make of it. A lot of aircraft owners are, well, 
I don't want to say lazy, but they tend to just own the aircraft and let the mechanic deal with the owners, the mechanical part of it. But you can learn a lot from working on your own aircraft. I've learned a lot working on my own aircraft, doing oil changes and preventative maintenance. Um, it's a very rewarding experience, but that's not what we're talking about exactly. So let's move on to the different jobs you can get. Um, Dana touched on this, and I think Nick did too. Um, being a CFI, um, it's not for everybody. It, it's not for me. I have no intention of ever being a CFI. I don't think I possess the understanding, the knowledge, or want the liability of teaching people how to fly. That's just me. There's other people out there that want that. Dana's prime example, he still has his CFI. Um, Mass Trescott, he's out there teaching people every day how to fly. And uh, he's, he's even got a podcast dedicated to teaching people how to fly and learning more about general aviation. I applaud both both of them for wanting to do this. It's not for me. And I, and I think a lot of people do not want to be CFIs. Um, so there's other options you have out there. So once you get commercial certificate, you can either spend some more money and go get your, your CFI, which is a certified flight instructor, or you can go and do um, various low-time pilot jobs. So low-time pilot jobs con- consist of um, aerial survey, which is what I do, um, banner towing, um, flight instructing. Um, you can be a ferry pilot, or you can work at a 135 operation, which can be hauling passengers around, flying cargo, or various other operations. And there's also Part 91K, which is similar to Part 135. Um, there's some differences regarding the operations, and I don't know enough to go into detail about them, but if you're more than welcome to go read um, CFR Part 91K and Part 135 operations. But the big differences is in the Part 135 world is 135 VFR pilots have to have at least 500 hours total time to be able to, to fly on the aircraft in the right seat. Um, and that's if it doesn't require a type certificate or type rating, excuse me. Um, if it requires a type rating in the company um, wants you to once you come work for them, they'll genuinely pay for the type ready for you to fly in the right seat, and then you can log time in that aircraft. However, if there's not a type rating involved and they still want you to fly the aircraft, you can only log time. Well, okay, I'm not gonna go into that. Um, I highly encourage you to go look up the differences in that regarding time logging as an SIC and a 135 operation as a VFR 500-hour uh, pilot. Um, there's definitely companies out there that will hire you to fly in the right seat, but there's certain limitations as to what you can log as a 135 VFR pilot in the, in the right seat as a second-in-command SIC. Um, and then you have Part 135 IFR, Instrument Flight Rules, um, pilots that require at least 1,200 hours and some other additional requirements that also may or may not require a type rating that you can um, work as, as a second-in-command pilot or a PIC pilot, pilot-in-command um, operating under that 135 operation. And then Part 91K, um, their, their rules are a little bit different. You'll have to look that up on your own. I'm not 
overly familiar with that. That's just another way you can build time. Um, and then, you know, those are just some of the ways you can build time. There's all kinds of different ways you can be. You can build time. Um, I've said it before, I think, in some previous feedback. Networking in the aviation world is the best thing you can do for yourself. Um, go on the forums, uh, Pilots of America, Airline Pilot Central, Pilot Rumor Network, Beat, Beach Talk Forum. I mean, there's probably hundreds out there you can go to. Um, go in there, connect with people that are in your area that have aircraft. You know, a lot of people like having people flying right seat with them. Um, it's a good experience for you um, because you're flying an aircraft probably you've never flown before, which is a good thing. Um, it's always nice to have experience in the aircraft. And you're sort of working in a crew environment, and I say crew environment loosely because you have someone else in the aircraft that you're having to work with to fly the aircraft, um, which is a good experience towards going towards the airlines and everything. Um, but it networking it's great and you know even if you don't want to go to the forums just utilize this podcast i mean you've got three four and if miami rick ever comes back which by the way we really miss you and you should come back um five pilots to pull information from and then not only that the listeners i mean you've got um, listeners to this show that are pilots over in the UK, pilots over in the Middle East, Australia, Asia, the States. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. So you can pull all kinds of information out there. Um, and I mean, I've benefited from the networking, from just the forums in general, and, and even this show, believe it or not. Um, I know, I know a lot of people are probably like, oh, I just listen to this show to fall asleep. No, no. It, yes, it is good to fall asleep on, but it's good for networking as well. Um, so I, I hope all of this has been beneficial. I know I would kind of breeze through it, um, but you use it for your benefit. You know, if you want to go from leaving your cushy office job like I have to being an airline pilot, you know, do your due diligence, do research, you know, what's going to work best for you. If, you know, you're single like I am, yeah, well, I was about to say young, but I'm not really young anymore. But either way, if, if you have the motivation to do it, just do your research, figure out what route is best for you to go from zero hours to 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 hours Whatever the case may be, figure out what's best for you, plan it out, budget for it, put back money, and then do it. And, and it's going to be scary. I'm just here to tell you. It, it's the scariest feeling when you leave your cushy office job and go make minimum wage flying aerial survey. It, it's it's scary. It's, you know, you, you've got everything to worry about, but everything to gain but if you've got the motivation and the dedication to go from zero to airline pilot you're going to do it you, you will find a way to do it and um you know there's plenty of people out there that will help you with it i'm i mean i'm probably one of them i'm more than happy to provide any information I can to whoever to, to get from zero hours to 1500 hours um 
especially here in the States, I could probably help you out if you live in the United States better than if you live in an else part of the world, but I'm more than happy to help you point, point you in the right direction to get you to where you need to be. But anyway, um, I hope, I hope this feedback is helpful for whoever listens to it and everything. And I hope everybody's doing well. And I, I know I said this the last feedback, I would, um, leave some feedback about what's been going on with me and the survey life and everything. But I, I felt like I should leave this feedback before I got to uh, my personal life as far as where I'm at with everything. But, uh, hope, I, hope everybody's doing well. And, um, if anyone's got any questions, um, just send them to Jeff and I'm sure he'll, uh, forward them to me. Anyway, y'all take care. Very nice, Stephen. I, had I had, time to get two beers i drank the first one i had to go back and get a second one <laughs> that's really really good advice especially coming from someone like steven who has just gone through and actually is in the midst of yeah all he's, of in this. The, he's in the thick of it and you know people out there might not realize but that's probably one of the biggest questions we get asked it doesn't always get played on air just because it's so frequent um and we do address it quite oftenly but that was or quite often but that was a nice you know it took takes time to get through all of that but just because it's a lot of information mm -hmm. and there's a lot of people out there who don't know where to find all that information so thank you to Stephen for putting it all together yeah. Stephen is actually my hero anyone who could throw out a a, a fine job that he had as uh, an engineer and um, take the path he had and the hard work he's putting in I you know I my heart goes out to him because it's a tough old uh, path he is trying to walk and i really hope uh, and i'm pretty certain because of his uh, skill and his knowledge and his determination that he's going to get there i'd take him along well and not only that he's a, a very fine example of what you can do in this business and for those folks that are listening to the show that are that are on the fence at all uh, Stephen Ivey is a, a, a true example of what you can go out and accomplish, even in, in the light of uh, taking a really great uh, job, but having a dreaming and going forward with it. I mean, I'm sitting here because of it. Uh, Stephen someday will be sitting here because of it. And uh, if you put the for you know put forward uh, the effort, and there's, there's not, no such thing as easy. Um, it does take a lot of work and a lot of capital but uh, if you put forth the effort the the reward at the end of the rainbow is 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 definitely there uh, a couple of things that steve and uh, talked about in, in great length and i'm very impressed that what he did was all the different avenues in which you can you know you can go and uh, excel at uh, uh, you know your education and then took the time to list out how you can you know get all the other different jobs so uh, I, my hats off to steve Stephen, you did a great job, and uh, Godspeed to you, sir. You're doing an excellent job out there, and we look forward to. I, I, I'm looking forward to having you as my first officer. These two guys will be retired by then. Yeah, and by the way, your hat's not off. Um. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Hats okay, off. now his hat's off for for real. <laughs> for real. <laughs> for real. Yeah, I took it off. Um, Tell the aviation. Yeah, that's a nice, uh, nice hat. Uh, and, and by the way, Stephen, you are young. <laughs> he tries to tell us he's not Very young. young. That depends on, yeah, compared to maybe a 12-year-old, you're not. Anyway, thank you very much for sending that in, Stephen, really. And uh, now we're going to have something to 
send to people that have these questions. Refer to this, please, because he covers it all. All right. Uh, Class Bravo Chris. Short-time listener, first-time feedbacker, and private pilot who thought about an airline career but didn't pursue it because of the likely post-training return on investment. Low salary, unknown benefits, etc. It's not the cost of training. It's the likely pay after training. Captain Dana and Dr. Steph, let's look beyond the check ride. Dr. Steph, tell us how much it costs to go to medical school. I doubt it's much less than flight training, and maybe more. And... Medical school certainly takes longer in some cases, yet the pay after becoming a doctor is without question higher, uh, at least potentially, than what I'd make as a first officer or even captain, even after a 30-year career. So let's stop blaming flight training costs. Those machines are expensive to operate and instead blame the airlines, including yours, guys, for not stepping up and paying for what we should be worth as highly trained, safe, enthusiastic, in-demand, happy pilots. Thanks, ABG crew. Keep up the debate. And again, this is class Bravo Chris from Kilo Sierra, Quebec, Lima. What is SQL? Is that something out near Salt Lake City? Or have You know, I have no idea. I don't um, either. I probably could have looked up in advance, but if you give me half a second, I'll tell you. But but first you have to answer. I know I have to answer your question. His here. question about medical school costs. And, yeah. Um, so without getting super personal, I Googled the average uh, cost of medical training in the U.S. going to medical school, $166,750. So maybe a little bit more chunk of change. That's medical school, though, does not include any loans that you took out for your undergraduate or a lot of folks who actually pursue um, postgraduate degrees before going on to medical school. So master's degrees um, oftentimes. Um, and I will tell you from personal experience and personal knowledge of many other physicians in my same situation that that $166,750 is probably, it, it's average, but most folks have more debt when they leave school because they have other debts that are accumulated. So you could probably easily put it in the $200,000 to $250,000 range. And the bigger problem with um, physicians, especially is that after you graduate from medical school, then you often have postgraduate training that you have to go through, um, commonly referred to here in the U.S. as a residency. So there's an intern year, and then several years after that, which is residency training. Um, depends on what specialty you go into, but on average, let's say the average resident makes about $50,000 a year, which sounds great, um, but consider that they're probably working 60 plus hours a week. So if you figure out what that is for their hourly pay, it's not great. And it really doesn't allow you to pay off or put a whole lot of money towards your student loan debt at that time. So frequently, um, and this is a completely legitimate option that uh, trainee medical doctors have, they have the ability to put those loans into, they can defer them and they can forbear them. And with that, frequently the interest continues to accrue. And if you don't pay that interest, it then capitalizes and then you are paying interest on top of interest at the end of all of that. So that $166,750 is a raw number. And I would say that's not, not reflective of what people actually end up paying back once they're finished with medical school. So then you take the average physician salary 
and I looked up family medicine physicians because I think there's that's probably pretty middle of the road. Um, you know, you can get some specialties that certainly earn far more money than this. Um, in particular, folks like pediatricians actually make less money than this. But primary care physicians earn on average one hundred ninety-five thousand, um, so around two hundred thousand dollars. So if you have two hundred thousand dollars salary, but you also have two hundred thousand dollars in school debt it's really hard to get yourself out of that hole because then on top of it, you have your living expenses, your housing expenses, your transportation costs, your food, clothing, you know, if you have a family, you've got all of those expenses. Um, your Porsche, your, uh, mountain home, your, obviously, uh, your, your, your uh, island home. home. Yes. Yeah. No, I, traveling the world, go run marathon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No. I, I'm just going, I'm just trying to put it out there that for quite Lakeside a cottage, <laughs> brand new jeeps, yeah, with no doors. Oh, I suppose that's a saving. It is a savings. It's actually an option. Um, but you can Steph got just a pretty like, color, huh? Hasn't Steph got a pretty color? No, I was, no, I was red before this started because it's really hot in this room, and I was going to turn the fan on, but it's going to be uh, really loud. Um. But can you see you've just completely sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> what I was say is that I don't think it's that dissimilar, and it's not really comparing apples to apples either, because the the training paths are a little bit different. Um, you know, if you took two equivalent people who come out of, they both go to college for four years. One of them goes on to med school for four years. The other goes to. Um, Let's just take, for example, part 141 flight training or part one, part 61 flight training that Stephen was just talking about. And it takes them two, two and a half years to get all of their required hours and they spend money going through their ratings. They spend money getting their um, CFI, but then they make a little bit of money and um, spend a lot of time living on a, a somewhat low salary, um, trying to get those 1500 hours until they get a job with a, a regional and then go on from there. Consider the the person who's the pilot, they're looking at maybe what age would they be when they finish all of that training. Uh, if they finish college, they're 21. If they spend another couple of years, they're certainly first year, first officers out there who are in their early to mid-20s, let's say 25. Consider that the first, you know, physicians don't start, start their um, true job most of the times until after the age of 30. So that's another five years in you know, potential income that's lost there. So it's not, it's not exactly the same, but you can draw, draw parallels there. But I think flight training costs are a big issue. I really do. I, I think it's a combination of the two. It's, it is the high cost of training if you don't go the military route and the fact that the pay isn't great, although it's getting better. And we have to say, um, after, after you get hired, uh, and then, of course, you know, will you get hired? You know, that's a uh, that's another big question mark. But uh, I think in in the time that we're living now, unless you're really not very good, you're going to get hired by somebody, I would imagine. So because of the fact that we really need the pilots out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <clears throat> what I was going to say is that uh, we and we and I'm not going to be a dead horse, but. You know the, the biggest thing, and, and even and even uh, Stephen 
alluded to it. Uh, the way people are building flight time is being by being flight instructors. Well, first off, you have to have a flight instructor that teaches the flight instructor to be a flight instructor, if you get what I mean. And uh, we're we're starting to get into that little conundrum that uh, when we, we're hiring flight instructors faster than we than we are replacing them because nobody's going to stay as a flight instructor. Very few. So it's it's kind of double edged sword. Um, and it's a, a very big risk. I mean, there is no guarantee. Steven walked away from a very good job, making really good money with a really good quality of life, comfortable living. And uh, there's no guarantee once he builds his time that he's going to get hired by anybody. I know plenty of people. Uh, my buddy Dave, I'm not going to use his last name, but uh, he now is flying corporate because he got stuck at ASA at a regional airline for 19 years. And now the company is going out of business. So there, 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 there is that love of it, but there's always the reality that you can't always guarantee that you're going to get forward. Now, Stephen, you know, he's he's an engineer. He's got a, a really strong background. Obviously, he clearly has an, uh, a college degree, and that was one of the biggest sticking points of my buddy Dave. He did not have the college degree. So if you have somebody smart like that, they, they're, they're going to look at you in, in a whole different way. So. Um, you know, again, those folks that are thinking about changing careers, if you have a college degree, great. Um, and you've already have a proven work record, great. Uh, it's going to bode very, bode very well for you in the future. But uh, I see what, where the parallels are in, in the medical field, and that's why it, it, going way back to my first uh, in-doc class at ASA, um, the parallel was drawn between uh, the gentleman that was teaching the indoor class, his wife was a doctor and he's a pilot, and how very similar our, our careers are, except for the differences. We have hundreds of lives in our hands at any given point with an always changing set of circumstances, whereas a, a doctor has one patient in their hands at any one given time. With a set of circumstances, they're fairly common, other than the body is just not the same. Everybody's body is different. So, But you always have a support staff if you're in an operating room. So. You know, it's a little bit very, very similar and and very, very, uh, very talented and have to have the skills to, to, but you have to have the heart to go forward with it. And uh, Chris, by the way, uh, has a question at the very end. At age 42, is it too late to try? No. Yeah, I think that you'll get a unanimous no. Uh, you know, age 65 is a mandatory retirement age, at least right now. And uh, no. You know, it depends on, you know, how much training you already have. I'm assuming you're already um, a pilot. But even if you aren't, I think that uh, it's not he's too He's a private late. pilot, he says. Yeah. Okay, that's right. Uh, also, he's a private pilot. That's right. Class Bravo. Chris at Kilo Sierra, Quebec, Lima, which is San Carlos Airport in Northern California, just north of the Palo Alto area and the Palo Alto Airport. And um, a little scary. We know a Carlos in... Um, in the UK, um, but I wouldn't call him a saint. Um, maybe, no. maybe some people would. Um, but uh, and then he has a a, a co-host named Math or Matthew or Mateo, and uh, San Carlos Airport is in San Mateo County. Kind of scary, isn't it? That's creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have guessed? Yeah. So uh, Carlos and Matthew together. All right, uh, moving on to number seven, Philip from Switzerland, uh, kind of keeping that same thing uh, theme about cost of flight training. He sent us some audio feedback. 
Hi, APG Crew and Community. Philip from Switzerland here. This is my first audio feedback, um, but I hope to provide some insights on how expensive it is to learn to fly in Europe. After listening to APG episode 326 and talking about the cost of, of learning to fly, I got curious about how expensive it is to get a PPL in Europe. As most other people here, many of us are aviation enthusiasts and some of us are pilots. Many of us surely are also looking to to do that PPL, but are taken aback by the price, me including. Especially for us younger people, these costs seem extremely high. I'm only 20 years old and don't have a job or enough savings which would make it possible for me to get my PPL. Now please remember that all these numbers may vary on where you exactly live, and this is not a list of all European countries and the cost of doing a PPL. I'll start off with Spain, as a good friend of mine has just completed his PPL there and has been raving about how beautiful and amazing it was. I have to admit, I am a bit jealous of him, but at the same time, I'm happy for him, uh, especially because I'll get to fly around with him soon. Then uh, the neighboring country of Switzerland and Spain, uh, France, uh, the PPL costs around 8,000 US dollars. This is one of the more cheaper European countries to learn to fly in. Then we have Germany and Austria, which are very similar at about at around 14,000 US dollars. The UK at about 10,000 US dollars, which is uh, 8,000 pounds. I'm sure Captain Nick will back this up or correct me if I'm wrong. And then the absolute top of my list, my home country, Switzerland, it will cost you around 20 to 23,000 US dollars to get your PPL. To be fair, Switzerland is one of the most expensive countries to live in, but I'm personally taken aback by this number, and I'm sure this is one of the reasons why people, not just in Switzerland, are hesitant to, hesitant to do their PPL, as the investment is huge, and for many people it may not be worth it. Now, one has to remember that obviously one could go to the US, and you can learn to fly and get your PPL for about $6,500 there. However, one has to remember that you will also have to pay for accommodation, travel, food when you're there, and probably around 10 other factors which I'm not taking into account. Plus, my friend who I mentioned earlier has to get five extra hours in Switzerland with, with an instructor as we learn how to fly in the mountains, an obstacle which every pilot faces here. Anyway, I hope I was able to provide some valuable feedback here. Uh, wishing you all blue skies and tailwinds. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Philip, for filling us in on some of the costs of just getting your private pilot's license in many of the European countries. Expensive in Switzerland, huh? Yeah. All right. Um, anything to add about the costs in the UK, Captain Nick, or we, like me, so far removed from it that we have no idea? Well, that's exactly right, Jeff. I'm sorry to say that it was so long ago and things mm -hmm. have changed so much. I don't really, I haven't really kept up to date with it. And just a, an aside, uh, I'm not sure if you should be concerned or not, but it looks like a whole bunch of Twitter birds are just flying around your head. Oh, people are tweeting me all the time. Uh, apparently so. <laughs> just raining tweets on top of <laughs> Captain Nick's head. Well, speaking of Captain Nick and, and uh, uh, I don't know, uh, I don't have a good segue at all. Um, I think it might be a good time for us to do this week's plain tale, which is a little VC tenderness. Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's playing tales. A little VC tenderness. Some of you may know of an aircraft that holds a special place in my heart. 
As a child, I watched on our old TV in awe as it arrived at the Farnborough Air Show, whereupon the chairman of British United Airways had his large and showy Rolls-Royce offloaded as a demonstration of the size and capability of the new Combi cargo area. The aircraft was the Vickers VC-10, and the reason for my excitement was that my father was waiting to take that very aircraft onto Nairobi later for a commercial flight. Knowing that my dad, a World War II veteran who has featured in several tales, listens to the show, I trust you will forgive me if I take a look back at one of the aircraft that he loved to fly. The VC-10 took to the air in 1962, a sleek, narrow-body, rear-engined airliner with a commanding and beautifully swept T-tail. It was powered by four mighty Rolls-Royce Conway turbofans, had a length of nearly 159 feet, and its highly swept, slender wing had a span of over 146 feet. It could carry just over 150 passengers in great comfort and at speeds that modern airliners only dream of since it could easily cruise at Mach decimal 88. The VC-10 came about to fill a need for the British state long-haul carrier, British Overseas Airways Corporation, to have a medium-ranged airliner that could operate from the high or hot destinations that they flew to, such as Karachi, Singapore, Kano and Nairobi. With its design faults, the Comet wasn't a serious option, and they had already ordered 15 Boeing 707s, but they were oversized and underpowered for these destinations. The VC-10 was going to be a completely new design with some great concepts. By mounting the engines at the rear, it left the wing clean and able to give its best, However, the weight of wing-mounted engines on the 707 opposed the upward force of lift and reduced the amount that the wing bends. As such, the VC-10 wing would need to be stronger and heavier. The aerodynamic design, however, was groundbreaking. Vickers worked with the Royal Aircraft Establishment, the National Physics Laboratory, and the Aircraft Research Association do develop a supercritical aerofoil section that would reduce drag at high Mach numbers by delaying the onset of shock waves. In addition, the wing was tuned to delay conventional flow separation, resulting in a wing that was highly efficient at both high and low speeds. When compared with the very conventional shape of the Boeing wing, it was a generation ahead and the VC-10 could cruise faster and land slower than its main competitor, the 707. With its impressive 32.5 degrees of sweep, the wing had a maximum design Mach of decimal 886, but later in its life this was increased to Mach decimal 925 and up to Mach decimal 94 in a dive. 
Indeed, the VC-10 claims the fastest crossing of the Atlantic by a subsonic airliner of 5 hours 1 minute between JFK and Presswick. The VC-10 was one of the few T-tailed airliners that had a natural nose-down pitch in the stall, which was induced by an aerodynamic force created by the engine sails, and a case was made for it to fly without a stick pusher. In a stall, the T-tail design is prone to enter a super stall where the tail is blanked by turbulence from the wing and becomes ineffective, preventing recovery. A mechanical stick pusher, automatically activated just before the stall, prevented this possibility and, in the end, one was added as a belt and braces safety feature. The early version, dubbed the standard VC-10, had higher than expected fuel consumption and, before long, Vickers, or more correctly by then the British Aircraft Corporation, produced the Super VC-10. This improved model had more powerful engines, an additional fuel tank in the fin to increase the range, and a fuselage stretch to increase the passenger load. It also sported improved Kuchman wingtip designs and engine nacelles that reduced drag and allowed it to cruise higher at the same weight. However, this made-to-measure aircraft was about to be overtaken by the off-the-rack Boeing 707. Built specifically for BOAC's needs, nobody had the imagination to realise that in order to operate the 707 from those worrisome hot-high airfields, all that was needed were longer runways, which, over time, were built. By the time the Super VC-10 came along, it was competing directly with the 707 regardless of the destination, and as a consequence the main customer, BOAC, tried to reduce its orders. The British government intervened, and the well-publicised squabble reduced the order book from other airlines even more. After all, if the main UK airline bad-mouthed and didn't want the VC-10, there surely must have been something wrong with it, right? In the end, BOAC's chairman, Gerard John Regis Leo Delanga, and managing director Sir Basil Smallpiece both resigned. The new chairman, however, was no breath of fresh air, as he was equally set against the new shiny Vickers airliner. In the end, BOAC purchased only 12 standard versions and 17 supers, but they really hadn't taken into account the popularity the aircraft would achieve both with passengers and crew. It was particularly praised for its comfort, speed and low cabin noise level and BOAC obtained higher load factors with the VC-10 than with the 707 or any other aircraft in its fleet come to that. A catchy ad campaign also helped when passengers were asked to try a little VC tenderness. Other airlines were less critical of the aircraft, and over the years it was operated by British United Airways, Ghana Airways, Gulf Air, Air Ceylon, East African Airways, Middle East Airlines, Air Malawi, Nigerian Airways, 
British Caledonian, Laker Airways and British Airways. It also served with the military of Oman, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates and the UK. By now, Vickers were just looking to cover their costs. They had built the aircraft to BOAC specifications and then been sold down the river, and since this was a private venture by Vickers, they were looking at a huge loss. However, the RAF was about to save the day. In 1960, they'd issued a specification number 239 for a strategic transport and placed orders for a number of VC-10s. They picked up more from BOAC's cancelled orders and there began a long love affair with the aircraft. It proved to be an excellent workhorse for the military, acting as a transport, an aeromedical and evacuation aircraft, a VIP transport and an air-to-air refuelling tanker. The last RAF VC-10 flew in 2013 when it was replaced by the Airbus A330 Voyager. The VC-10 was a much-loved aircraft and gave rise to many tales of daring do from its crews. A few of the more notable events include a day that was, in its time, known as the blackest day in aviation. Palestinians took control of a BOAC VC-10 as it flew between Bombay and London. It was the 6th of September 1970, and whilst passing over the Middle East, the hijackers forced the crew to land their aircraft at Beirut, before moving on to a rough airstrip in Jordan called Dawson's Field. There they joined a previously hijacked TWA-707 and Swissair DC-8, where they and their passengers became part of a group of 310 hostages. A fourth aircraft was hijacked, a Pan Am 747, which, being too large to land in the desert, was forced to land at Cairo, where it was emptied and blown up shortly after touching down. Whilst the hostages awaited their fate, the three Dawson's Field airliners were also blown up, images of which were shown on television around the world. With negotiations involving several countries and complicated by the Jordanian authorities declaring martial law and then initiating military action, it took some time to resolve the situation, but eventually all the hostages were released. However, it was this event that prompted President Nixon to implement the use of armed sky marshals on US aircraft and to investigate the use of X-ray machines at civil airports. In June 1971, a VC-10 was on its way from Buenos Aires to Santiago when it hit a patch of severe turbulence over the Andes Mountains. In the word of the captain, David Phillips, We dropped like a stone, only to be lifted up again, forced into our seats. The wings tilted until we were, from time to time, flying vertically on our sides. The pilots found it almost impossible to read the flight instruments, but during a lull they were able to see that they were down at 28,000 feet, only a little above the Andes, which reach up to 27,000 feet. Then, after another terrifying bout of turbulence, they were thrown back up to 35,000 feet. 
The aircraft was tossed onto its side at over 90 degrees of bank and then pitched headlong down towards the mountain peaks, reaching speeds of up to Mach decimal 96 with the high-speed warning blaring. Moments later, the stall warning would be sounding. The severity of the upset caused the power control units on several flight control services to be knocked out of action, leaving the crew with very little control authority. Miraculously, they managed a recovery, resetting the PCUs along the way, and they landed the aircraft safely at its destination. After a ground check, it was dispatched on its next flight home to Gatwick via Freetown. However, during the Freetown to Gatwick leg, an unusual vibration was noticed in the airframe, which increased in severity. On finally landing at Gatwick, it became clear that a part of the leading edge of the stabiliser had detached, and the leading edge spar of the fin was broken. Furthermore, the wing torsion box had been distorted, with the wingtips now sitting about four feet higher than they should. The combined damage required lengthy repairs, and only after several months in the hangar did the aircraft fly again. The incident, however, proved the strength of the VC-10 airframe, as other aircraft in similar situations might well have lost structural integrity and broken up. Certainly, on an airliner with wing-mounted engines, the engine mounting pins would almost certainly have failed as the aircraft was spun around. On another day, in May 1967, a VC-10 was due to fly from Bombay to Nairobi. After a day's rest in Bombay, the flight engineer complained to the captain that he was feeling rather unwell, Unwilling to delay the flight, the captain persuaded the engineer to press on, so they departed on time. However, passing 10,000 feet, the poor chap had dreadful stomach cramps and had to dive into the toilet for an extended stay. He would have been there longer, but at 15,000 feet, they lost power on all four engines. The purser hammered on the toilet door and dragged poor Harry, the engineer, back to the flight deck. By the time he got there, they were descending rapidly towards the Indian Ocean. One by one, he restarted the four engines, and as power was restored, the descent was arrested, and the aircraft resumed its climb. There was one particular passenger who had noticed the engine stop and would not accept the standard story that it was a minor technical hitch. He demanded a large scotch on the house. The failure proved impossible to replicate and in the end the inquiry had to give up citing the captain as a most unreliable witness to the events that happened. To end on a more humorous note, a story from a flight engineer. During a long flight, a respected businessman and his wife were travelling in first class. At some point during the flight, the wife, a rather upper-class lady, visited the flight deck and remarked about the aircraft's vintage. A little upset, the flight engineer told the lady that, despite its age, the newest technologies were incorporated in the aircraft. Voice-controlled throttles. Now, for the non-initiated, the VC-10 has two sets of throttles, 
one on the pedestal in between the pilots and a second set on the corner of the flight engineer's station. The engineer got an incredulous look both from the lady and the pilots, who figured they would let the chap have some fun and quickly went back to staring at their instruments. He went on to explain to the lady that all the pilots had to have their voices recorded for use with the system as it was quite sensitive. Still getting a questioning look, he asked the pilots to demonstrate. The captain, not wanting to interrupt the game, said, Number two throttle back. And to the lady's astonishment, the number two throttle on the pedestal moved back an inch as the engineer tweaked his own set of levers. The flight engineer then asked her to try it, and strengthened by the demonstration, she cautiously said, Number two, throttle back. But sadly, nothing happened. It was explained that she had to get a bit closer, as the system probably didn't pick up her command. A second try didn't get a result either, and now the engineer suggested that she lowered her voice a bit to better emulate the pilot's voice. Both pilots were now staring intently outside, doing their best not to laugh out loud, as the image of the lady, on her knees behind the pedestal, speaking to the throttles in a lower tone as she could. This, of course, only got worse when she became ecstatic at the first sign of a throttle moving under her command. It must have been the combined shaking and the muffled sounds of laughter that emanated from the crew that finally made her realise that something was wrong, the end result being an angry visitor storming back to the cabin, leaving the flight deck filled with laughter. My thanks today to Jal Heiminger from Eindhoven, who has created the website bc10.net, the source for a lot of today's tales. I can recommend it. And also to Captain Andy Anderson. I hope that this has stirred a few happy memories. Another awesome plane tale and an awesome airplane, the VC-10. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, it was defeated by a more economical and less expensive machine. But the guys who flew the VC-10 said that for its generation, it was wonderfully overpowered. It had more uh, redundancy than uh, almost any aircraft that ever flown. Uh, and uh, it was just a fantastic performer. But Unfortunately, uh, you know, cost of seat per mile, uh, the the less expensive 70s um, took the field. Yeah, and uh, it kind of reminds me of the, the same sort of thing happening with the 727. You know, it uh, eventually was overcome by uh, the economics of its operation, but it was uh, built like a tank. There you go. Absolutely. And my father isn't uh, brilliantly well at the moment, and I know he started listening to the show, so I thought that might be nice for him to have a story he can relate to. Well, Andy, I hope you enjoyed it. it. Yeah, so do I. All right, uh, moving on to eight. Kent writes, APG Crew, in episode 326. You mentioned the story of Uber's autonomous flying car concept meeting the realities of regulators and also about EASA's consideration of flight sharing. It reminded me of a saying applicable to sea and air travel, quote, 
travel by sea and by air are inherently safe, but they are very unforgiving of mistakes. I think that's what the general public is missing when they think of Uber in the skies or flight sharing, Airbnb of the skies. Thanks for the great shows. Kent Penny, Aviation Planner. Thank you, Kent, for that, and we agree. Absolutely. There, there are more things to consider than just the bottom line. Yep. It's it's not nearly as easy as George Jefferson, not George Jefferson, but the yep. Jefferson. Was it George uh, Jefferson? Jetsons. No, I said. The Jetsons. Jetson, yeah. Jetsons, not George <laughs> Jefferson. Jefferson. Well, we're moving on. I, I think we're moving on up. I think one of the Jetsons would make a great president, actually. Not a. <laughs> oh, let's see. Well, speaking, we're laughing. Uh, speaking of humor, Texas Charlie sent us a good one, uh, a link to a YouTube vid- video. He said, uh, sorry, Captain Roger Victor had to pull the previous deferred item list video because of an airline logo that was in the background. The attached video is the new approver. Oh, okay, that's a a behind-the-scenes production note that he sent to uh, us. Sorry. Um, So I'm going to see. I'm going to use the dreaded uh, echo button. Yes. What could go wrong? So, if you'll bear go with wrong, me. Go wrong, go wrong, go wrong. <laughs> it could never go wrong, go wrong. I can't take this anymore. I got planes breaking over here. I got planes breaking over there. How the hell am I supposed to keep up with everything? Wait a second. There's a deferred item list. We'll just defer it till later. Write-ups get opened and need little fixes Logbook entries that call for my tricks Filters, pumps, and cockpit trimmings These are a few of my deferrable things Seatbacks that fall down and passenger tray tables Landing lights and taxi lights and certain control cables Vortex generators on top of the wings these are a few of my deferrable things. Galley carts that wobble and coffee pots that won't brew. Static wicks and doors that stick in oxygen for the crew. Toilets that won't flush and landing gear springs. These are a few of my deferrable things. When the captain calls, when the plane breaks, when I'm frustrated and mad. I simply remember my deferrable things and then I don't feel so bad. Hey Roger, we'll just defer the entire freaking plane. Okay, there you go. That's uh, Captain Roger Victor and... uh, I'll put a link to his uh, I, I YouTube channel. That. That's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> it was actually very well done. I love the uh, lyrics there. Uh, if you're not following him, he does a lot of um, videos similar to that um, with puppets about humorous things in the aviation industry from a pilot's uh, perspective. Good point, Steve, yeah. because a lot of people listening aren't seeing this. And uh, <laughs> you have to imagine, what is it, a raccoon? Uh, that was a raccoon, I think. But yeah. he's got different characters um, in all of his videos. Most commonly, it's the the captain. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Who yeah. looks just like a Muppet. Yeah. Don't we all? 
We're all you know, we're all Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Texas Charlie, for that. And again, uh, we'll have that link in the show notes for you to watch the video because it's very uh, entertaining. And uh, let's see how we're doing for time. Yeah, we're going to keep on going here. Um, Gus writes, I read these articles and can't help thinking, or I read these articles and can't help thinking of those saying that airplanes will fly with no pilots at all. Still science fiction, I believe. And he said, blue skies to you all. And the uh, article that he's referencing is the Tesla Model X began, and we're talking about the uh, one that crashed in uh, Northern California. Uh, Model X began a left steering movement and then sped up. A navigation mistake by autopilot contributed to the grisly death of a Tesla Model X owner in Mountain View, California, according to a preliminary report released today by the National Transportation Safety Board. And uh, Apple engineer, the guy at the wheel, or behind the wheel, uh, we, Walter Huang, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that, probably not pronouncing that correctly, but... um, Anyway, Walter was traveling south on U.S. Highway 101 on March 23rd when his Model X P100D smashed into the safety barrier section of a divider that separates the carpool lane from the off-ramp to the left. The front end of his SUV was ripped apart, the vehicle caught fire, and two other cars crashed into the rear end. Uh, Walter was removed from the vehicle by rescuers and brought to Stanford Hospital where he died from injuries sustained in the crash. Now, you'll remember we talked about this, uh, I believe, uh, and uh, the company, uh, Tesla, was saying, well, there were like two visual alerts and one auditory alert for him to put to place his hands on the steering wheel. Now, it turns out that these alerts were made more than 15 minutes before the crash and during the last 60 seconds before the impact, uh, his hands were on the steering wheel for a total of 34 seconds. So... Um, you know, it, it wasn't like he was just, you know, not not paying attention, not having his hands on the wheel. And it was just the last six seconds that it did not sense any hands on the wheel before it ended up veering into the barrier and actually accelerating. So I guess the point is we're still having a tough time figuring this um, autonomous car car thing in two dimensions. And people are talking about a three-dimensional airplane that'll be autonomous carrying people around. I don't know if that's a great idea, but we'll see. Yeah, I personally think it's actually a bit simpler flying an airplane. No. Um, yeah. I actually do think people somehow get the sense that it would be simpler to program pilotless aircraft than driverless cars. Because sometimes I almost get that impression from people who aren't overly familiar. Uh, when they watch drones motoring around the world and doing all sorts of very clever military stuff, I guess they have a point. But what they don't know is the huge number of those military drones that they lose uh, every every week, every month. Um, I mean, it's one of those. Oh, good point. I've got a couple in my backyard. I don't know what to do with it. What do you reckon? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, seriously, there, there have been all kinds of incidents. Uh, people close to the matter have uh, revealed that uh, the the military doesn't want us to know about the fact that there are things going wrong all the time. And all they have to do if it's over there in Afghanistan or whatever is just hit a button and it blows up. Not something you can really do when it's carrying passengers. Well, I guess you could, but it wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a very popular thing. No. I would believe it too because 
I was up in, uh, I think it's Syracuse. Yeah, it's Syracuse, mm-hmm. where they're, uh, you know, have the drones in the pattern with the commercial aircraft now. Mm-hmm. And I was doing my walk around back when I was first officer. Now I can say that. That's kind of weird. Anyways, <laughs> I was doing my walk around and I hear this crank. I mean, it's just like a, you could hear it. It just sounded like a crushing sound. And I turned around only to see that the drone had just landed. And it just, it, it just, pancaked in i mean i don't know how that that thing did not break Hmm. but uh yeah it's there you don't part of the problem is you don't have a sense for the feeling like if you if you're flying a drone around you don't have a sense for what the vehicle's doing you know getting what the wind's doing to you you know we have that touch as human beings we can sense that type of stuff now yeah we do make mistakes but uh, autonomous type of self-driving vehicles, I agree with you, Nick, is that if you get out there in the airline world, the flying world, you don't have as many threats per se that you deal with on a regular basis with driving a vehicle on the ground. Stoplights, other you know, vehicles coming to you from at, at you from all directions all the time. So you know, we you know, we have the TCAS system which alerts us to to you know, threats and the air traffic control that alerts you to threats. So, uh, you know, we do have that in a lot of respects is easier. However, the human touch, which allows the the human um, interaction to, to have a feel for things and what what's going on, that's the thing that I think is going to be very difficult to overcome. Yep. Yeah. Nothing could go wrong. Nothing could go wrong. Right. right. Exactly. All right, uh, let's see. I'd like to squeeze in some audio feedback from our good friend and main man, Micah, before we end today's show. And I'm not even sure how long this is because I have not listened to it yet myself. So I'm just going to hit play and see what happens. Here we go. Windowless aircraft and the moving map in three, two. Recently, there's been much discussion about windowless passenger aircraft becoming the wave of the future. Based on the direction society is now moving, I'm sure it'll become a reality at some point. I also suspect that at some time, we'll see windows becoming either luxuries for the rich or old technology left for the poor. Think about it. We already have windowless offices. Even in many offices that still have windows, those windows are left for the upper class, highly paid top executives. The rest of us schlubs work in windowless cubicles and never see outside during a working day, unless we're let out for recess. The kernel of this story was originally written in May of 2013, and many of you have heard it before, but it's been made relevant again today by the thought of windowless travel, and how, at least as I see it, most people won't even notice. Here's why. I was ready to fly JetBlue Flight 607, but it was over an hour late departing Portland, Maine. I wasn't worried, though. I had already changed my connecting flight in JFK. All was well, and I just end up in Fort Lauderdale instead of West Palm Beach. Really not that big of a deal. The Embraer E-190 was far from full, with over 30 unfilled seats. In fact, I changed my place from 16A, what was called an even more legroom seat, to 25A, the last row of the aircraft that was completely empty. You see, that allegedly premium seat was positioned between windows. How could they sell a premium seat for more money when there wasn't even a window in that row? How little did I know. 
We took off to the west on runway 29 from PWM and started a bank south at about a thousand feet. I had this whole row, both sides of it, to myself, and there was no one around me. It was the back of the plane, the ghetto in passenger aircraft, but I guess I can be pretty ghetto if I have to. Part of my heritage, I suppose. My people were the original ghetto dwellers. I never understood the strange phenomena of ghettoizing the back of an airplane when all the seats are the same. If you haven't paid for an upgrade, as I had, but ended up not using, all seats have the same pitch and the same recline. Why is everyone so concerned about being in the front of the plane? Is it that two minutes extra it just might take to get off the aircraft upon arrival really worth the struggle to sit up front? After takeoff and our bank to the south as we climbed out, I could see the horseshoe curves of Scarborough Marsh. Just a bit further east, I could see Pine Point in Scarborough, Maine, and could even make out my friend's house by the beach. The E-190 continued to climb and we were headed toward New York. It was a beautiful clear day and I was looking east out my window with the entertainment system set to the moving map so I could track our speed and altitude. We were flying right down Interstate Route 95, only at 18,000 feet. I could see Portsmouth, New Hampshire clearly, the Piscataqua River, the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, and the Submarine Albacore Memorial Park. Off in the distance out in the Atlantic was the Isle of Shoals. It was stunning. I glanced up to the seatback screen. We were booking it, making up for lost time, traveling the JFK at 512 miles per hour at 21,000 feet. By now we were over Boston. I could clearly see the Zakem Bridge over the Charles River and even make out the cable stays. There was a Charleston Naval Shipyard and Old Ironsides, that's the USS Constitution. Further to the east, Logan Airport was clear as a bell. A moment later, we were over Providence, Rhode Island and Green Airport. Newport was clearly visible, and I could even see some of the old stately mansions from the 19th century. We cruised past Newport, and I was looking back at it, when I realized I could see the tail of the E-190 from my seat. That was a first for me from a commercial aircraft. I looked up inside the plane and down the aisle to the flight deck door. In all honesty, I couldn't believe what I saw. Everyone in the plane was looking at one or two screens at the same time. Most had their window shades down. I wanted to stand up and scream, shout out loud. Hey, you guys, we're flying. We're moving at 512 miles per hour, almost four miles high in the air. Hey, don't you know you're riding on a moving map? I couldn't believe the complacency and lack of interest. If this flight had been advertised as a narrated guided tour, people would pay thousands of dollars for it. But as an $80 airline flight, it was simply an inconvenience. We crossed Long Island Sound, and I could clearly see the north and south forks of Long Island, Block Island, and the Hamptons in Montauk. We started to slow down and descend. Then came an announcement from the flight deck. JFK had ATC delays and was putting us in a holding pattern. There was a collective moan from the cabin. Frankly, I'm surprised anyone heard it. But I was delighted, really happy about it, actually. We made our turn to the east and headed back north. I was now looking across Long Island Sound towards Connecticut. I could make out New Haven, Bridgeport, and Stamford. This flight just couldn't get any better. But then it did. We were now at 12,000 feet, 300 miles per hour, and made another turn when I saw it. An American 777, in what was then the new livery. Airplane spotting from 12,000 feet. Wow! I watched it until it was out of sight. Another turn, and it got better again. A beautiful, big green bird against a clear blue sky. 
an Aer Lingus A330, but closer. An announcement from the flight deck told passengers not to panic and explained ATC separation standards to keep passengers calm. But there was no panic. No one had even noticed. Everyone's head was buried in an electronic screen. All the shades were down. No one had seen the other planes but me, and I sure wasn't panicked. One last turn, and we were cleared to land. What a shame. I was intentionally the last one off the plane and stopped by the flight deck to thank the captain and first officer for a wonderful ride. I'm not sure if they were happy or puzzled that a fifty-something-year-old man had an ear-to-ear grin on his face like a little boy. I had one more surprise in store for me, another first, and another reason why windows are important to me, not just on aircraft, but at airports. When I got to JFK's Terminal 5 and looked across from my arrival gate out the big picture window, on the other side from where we were parked, I got to see my first Airbus A380. Thank you, Singapore Airlines. It was parked right next to a Virgin Atlantic A340, which gave me great perspective. That A380 may be ugly, but it's one big monster. Seeing them together once again showed me that the A340 is my favorite looking Airbus. What fine lines, but that's another story. So, windowless commercial airplanes? Probably not for me. Substitute TV screens for windows? Not my idea of flying either. I mean, why bother to go to all that trouble? Why not just see far off lands or meet people on TV as well? My guess though, after a bit of public uproar, we'll see the windows go away, and soon after that the TV screens too. After all, why would anyone want to look outside? No one does anyway. For the airline pilot guy, here in Portland, Maine, this is your main man, Micah. Micah, you've outdone yourself again. Uh, great work, and uh, we all agree with you. I mean, but you know, uh, I did. Well, oh, Nick doesn't. Dissenter. I, I think uh, it's a great concept. I think uh, we're chucking too much uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Anything that will reduce weight and make the efficiency of the aircraft is better. Most people look out of the windows anyway. And if uh, the screens that they replace the windows with are high enough definition, I think they'll be absolutely fantastic. Can you imagine being able to fly over the ground and then zoom in on and and uh, to see exactly what you're over? Have labels perhaps uh, on the on these screens or window screens so that you could see exactly what it is instead of having to ring the call bell and go, ah, excuse me, where's where's that? Well, we fly it over, and nobody in the airplane knows anyway. Uh, I think people are going to pull themselves away from the movies that they're watching on the uh, screen on the seat back. I think uh, if you did it right, I think if you did it right, made it interactive, made it really high definition, made it flexible, uh, you know, lots of different cameras and views, uh, which you've got on uh, the 380. And don't forget, usually, you know, on a big airliner, less than a quarter of the people have got a window anyway. So the other three quarters of the people don't get to see anything. So even if you're a keen uh, window gazer, so much better to have everyone having a decent screen and uh, be able to look out. Nick is clearly in the... Oops. Oh, George, you pushed the wrong button again. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the right one. Yeah. Yes, but accurate. Um, you it should be Jeff, you pushed the wrong button again. <laughs> I did, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently the one that I want to play is not in my... 
present soundboard. Oh, very oh, glad well. to hear that. Hey, yeah. hey, Nick, I've, I've actually seen uh, this technology on a cruise ship. Oh, really? Um, yeah, where the inside rooms now have projectors that project the outside. And uh, it's... I'm really mixed on this. I mean, I agree with you on in in two respects, and that is is that one, it's going to be better for the environment because you save a lot of weight and less carbon's being burned out there. Number two, most people, if you look at them these days, they're you know most of you can't see what I'm doing, but I'm looking at my cell phone. We spend our lives looking at technology. We don't bother interact with the people around us all you have to do is get on an airplane and look at the people and the seatmates and hardly anybody ever talks to each other anymore so uh it's no 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 amazement to me when i sit down on an aisle seat and people over in the window seats can't have the courtesy of opening up the window because they're too busy looking at their devices so i get that um but i'm on, i'm on, i'm more on micah's camp i mean i think it's a safety issue uh, flight tenants need to be able to see outside the aircraft and be able to ascertain what the status of the aircraft is in case of an emergency. And uh, I think natural light uh, being brought into the cabin is uh, also uh, a very good thing for people to be able to, without really consciously looking at out the window, knowing that the, everything's okay outside you know because you take a quick peek and know everything just seems to be normal so yeah because uh, several airlines or re- airline regulators around the world not the faa but uh, almost everybody else around the world requires that the seat uh, not the seat the uh the uh, shades the be shade. up for takeoff and landing because of uh, the safety part of it and that's what i'm wondering if a system like this was employed if they if these uh virtual windows would be uh, on some kind of a an emergency uh, electric electrical bus, so that you could still ascertain what was going on outside, or if that yeah, would be well, something I've, that you'd I lose. would guess so, if they they put real windows at each of the cabin crew stations, so they can actually mm-hmm. see out, and they probably do something like uh, every one in four would be on a, uh, an essential bus. Yeah. But I mean that 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 I think all of that is people can get around that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I would miss the authenticity. I like my gadgets and, you know, interactive displays and things like that as much as the next person. But there's nothing quite like being able to actually look out the window at the real world below you, marvel at the fact that you're however many thousand feet above it. And to be honest, I take a lot of pictures out of windows of aircraft and I enjoy looking back at those pictures. And sometimes I get some really good ones. You know, you get stuff like you probably can't see on my with the reflection there. Yeah, nice. I can see it. But I'm it's sure beautiful. there'll be a way to freeze frame your but window I don't and want send to take it to a picture of the <laughs> fake window oh, the image from outside. They'll, they'll sort that out. Um, no. you get the flickering. Confused between flying for joy and when you actually have to be able to look out and everything looks fine and you're gazing out of the window and going where you want and you're paying for a, a flight that, that you're going to look out and mass transport. Mm-hmm. We're in the mass transport business. We're not in the fly for joy business. Yeah. Mm, and but we're, I'm in the travel for joy business. People look at, listening to the show are people, we all agree, you know, it's nice to be able to see outside. But most people, as we've, you know, said. Sad. Uh, yeah, sadly. Uh, they're not av geeks and they don't care. They're not inspired by or thrilled by being in an airplane and seeing all these things that you normally can't see. Uh, which, uh, uh, yeah, it's sad. Um, well, it's just going to go the same way as cabin meals. 
used yeah. to be when you, you flew in this, you know, back in the day, even up into the 80s and early 90s. You get on the airplane, you're doing a, a flight down the East Coast, you get a nice little, you know, even though it was crap food, but a little steak or a little piece of chicken and, and, and a hot plate and, and food. But that's now all gone by the wayside for the most part, even even transcons. A lot of a lot of those long haul flights don't even have food on them, so people just don't put value on that. So I guess when when the traveling public in in our situation, Jeff, the airplane that we fly, one of the reasons why Acme is looking to, uh, you know, other than obviously the cycles on it and parts availability, is the the their promoter scores because people want to have the technology in the back of the seat so that they can sit there and watch the flight tracker or movie play play bingo or whatever else they want so they can occupy their time on the aircraft. And that's why they don't want to fly aircraft uh, and, and retire it and, and why they're reducing it down to 500-mile stage length or thereabouts. So, you know, pe- people are just so tied up in this technology. So in, in a lot of respects, you know, us av geeks, I mean, I grew up, it's all I want to do is look out windows of airplanes. And, and I think that uh, I think Nick is right in a lot of respects. It's probably going to go away. Uh, will it go away in my career? Probably not. But, you know, next generation airplanes, I can see it coming. Well, perhaps I should have read this because it was, as Liz um, (laughs) lined it up, the thing that I should have covered right before we heard Micah's uh, feedback regarding windowless planes. And this was sent in by Stuart. Emirates Airline has unveiled a new first-class suite on board its latest aircraft that features virtual windows. Yeah, so it's it's already here, guys. See, instead of being able to see directly outside, passengers view images projected in from outside the aircraft using fiber optic cameras. The airline says it paves the way for removing all windows from future planes, making them lighter and faster. And some of the things that Captain Nick had mentioned, the fact that it's going to uh, fly faster, burn far less fuel, fly higher, etc. I'm not quite sure how no windows makes it faster, but... I guess it'll burn less fuel, the aircraft yeah. would lighter. Less parasite drag. Right now for the, the Emirates one, this is just the first class cabins, I think on the 777 that are in the aisle part of the aircraft. Uh-huh. So that wouldn't have window access normally anyway. Oh. And they kind of have that kind of enclosed suite area for their ah. first class cabins. That's pretty cool. So this is actually, I actually like this use of the virtual windows because if for some reason you were allocated to a uh, aisle seats beyond your control. Perhaps all the windows were already taken. I think that's great. That yeah. gives you some semblance of feeling like you have the windows to look out. But, you know, before you know it, we're going to be, um, you know, using rockets to get us from one side of the world to of another, course. right? Of course. <laughs> do, 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 do. And, and where's my right. flying car? Yeah. <laughs> It'll all happen very soon, probably in the, within the next couple of years. All right, that will do it. We uh, got a lot of feedback, not all of it, that uh, we had in our feedback folder, but don't you worry if you send us feedback. Eventually, hopefully, we'll, we'll be able to get to it. And uh, let's see, if you want to learn more about our show and its community, which is the best part of it, uh, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. And we have uh, apps that you can put on your smart devices, uh, both on the uh, Apple uh, iOS App Store and Google Play, if you have an Android. And we're also on the social medias like Twitters and Facebooks. So if you're on the Twitters, 
find us at handle at APG crew. If you're on the Facebooks, that's facebook.com slash eight slash airline pilot guy. Excuse me. I almost messed that up. Wow. <laughs> like I've never done it before. Yeah. That's Pick it. That's all you have to say. Pick your poison. Both great <laughs> platforms. If you prefer the brevity, Twitter, if you like to be a little more verbose, Facebook. Yes. And Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel, and uh, God willing, I'll be able to see you tomorrow afternoon. Looking forward to it. And uh, until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Hasta la vista. See you next time. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.